The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 32 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network and the House Show proudly present to you this spooktacular time. <laughs> Let's welcome the trio's tag team champions of the world. The master library. Heaven straight out of hellions. Sweet Maddie, trick or treats. And the educator of exorcisms. Collectively known as the Haunted House Show. Enter at your own risk. Halloween Havoc 1993. On today's card, we see Ice Train, Charlie Norris, and the Shockmaster team up to take on Harlem Heat and the Equalizer. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat battles Paul Orndorff. The WCW World Television Champion Lord Steven Regal battles Davy Boy Smith. Dustin Rhodes defends his WCW United States Heavyweight Championship against stunning Steve Austin. For the WCW World Tag Team Championship, the Nasty Boys battle champions Marcus Bagwell and Tupold Scorpio. Sting battles Sid Vicious. For the WCW International World Heavyweight Championship, we see Ric Flair take on the champion Rick Rude. And in our main event, in a Texas death match, we see Cactus Jack battle Big Van Vader. Welcome everyone to another edition of The Haunted House Show. It is me as always, Mr. Sweet Maddie Trick or Treats. And I am joined by my trio's tag team partners. To my right is none other than the Educator of Exorcisms. Educator. This is the last Thursday in October. Oh, how how is your October? Uh, it has just the school year has been flying, uh, busy at the game store, getting lots of side lessons for the side driving school as well. It just it's a never ending thing. We're looking at we're sixty to sixty five to almost seventy hours a week. It's just been crazy. Enjoying my Sunday's time with you guys and recording these sessions here for Halloween Havoc. Looking forward to the upcoming uh, discussion on the NXT Halloween Havoc that we're going to have uh, in a day or so. Yeah, so the NXT Halloween Havoc is going to be our run-in episode, and that will drop on actual Halloween. A little trick-or-treat for you guys. Of course, our regularly scheduled um run in on that Monday will not be there. This is in place of it, but we really wanted to um, to give you guys a little special treat. So we are bending over backwards for you guys uh, to make sure that happens with our, you know, trying to give it a regular episode feel to it. Uh, but with, of course, um, the running and with the new stuff. But 
Anyways, that's a little housekeeping. Uh, speaking of housekeeping, Mr. Kevin straight out of Hellions, the hole in your house is gone now. Everything's cleaned up. You're in your new podcast studio. What's going on over there? So new podcast studio. Yes. Uh, I have the, I'm in the same room. I have the same table going and everything, but a little, a little behind the scenes. I have had horrible issues with my Chromebook randomly dropping out of the Wi-Fi. And then I miss part of the conversation as it comes back. And actually, last time record we recorded was one of the worst ones ever. I said, that's it. I got to do something about this. I spent hours research and turns out it's just a Chromebook thing. They do that sometimes. This sounds like a great quality level for it. Um, but coincidentally from work, uh, they were getting rid of a laptop and gave it to me. So I am actually running on a Linux right now. How many... Um times have you been given a laptop mr educator given a laptop um yeah like like someone's like hey we're getting rid of this do you want a free laptop that would be a zero yeah me too so kevin uh <laughs> i think things just sort of work out for you in the end yeah i i will admit i've had enough random things in life happen where i'm like how did i fall into this you know the free laptop finding my wife Having a kid. Well, I'll tell you how you had a kid. Okay, well, oh, there's okay. a man and a woman. Had a little baby. Now there's three in the family. What is that? Like a nursery rhyme? What were you trying to it's do there? Schoolhouse Rock. Three oh, the magic okay. number. There's a great cover by Blind Melon. Yeah. So um are you are you Kevin, are you ready for Halloween this Sunday? Or Saturday? I, when is it? Saturday. 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 When when our episode of the run in goes up to talk about NXT Halloween Havoc. I am me and my buddy, we got costumes. We're going to get all done up and maybe go out and uh, find something to eat and then play in the superhero costumes and and fight and wrestle a bit and everything. And then we'll take Declan out. Oh, great. Yeah. So you and your, your buddy, which is just a weird way of saying uh, that, um, did you get your costumes from HalloweenCostumes.com? Where else? Are you telling me there's another option? If there is another option, I don't think it's as good of an option. No, there's definitely not another option. So why don't you run down our item of the week? Halloween is close, so I know you already have your costume. But what about the accessories? Whether it's a little scarf, a belt, a bow, a wig. You need those extras to fill out your costume. And those extras can be found at HalloweenCostumes.com and Fun.com. Why, just take the wigs alone, for example. They have them in every color. Red, orange, blue, green, pink. And while it's a common color, my favorite is their best-selling one in black. That's right. It's in black, 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 black number one deals like that are a steal okay we are back and you know um i I think on the last podcast guys i talked about um my slow descent into becoming a serial killer you know showing up to work 45 minutes early just drinking black coffee in the morning listening to podcasts on two times speed watching people run by themselves on nature trails well something else happened guys no. uh, 
two nights ago. Oh, and uh, I don't know if it's socially acceptable. And I don't know why it came over me, but I had to get the feeling. Um, you know, during the, the cold months, this brings great joy to me. And it's a warmth that rushes over my body when I'm experiencing it, and I just can't turn away. Um, so, so a couple nights ago, on my way home from work, I listened to Christmas music. Why? Because they're already playing in your store. Oh. No, no, they're not. I, I think that's what it has to do with. Of course, you work retail. Uh, I mean, we've been out of Halloween for like two weeks now. And we are just chock full of Christmas stockings, tree skirts, um, you know, uh, peanuts, uh, you know, uh, Snoopy, uh, Charlie Brown, Christmas throws, blankets, a lot of decorations, a lot of glitter. Um, I, I don't know what came over me, guys, but I really wanted to listen to some Christmas music. <laughs> so... I'm going to guess the game store does not play Christmas music all season long. Do you guys have music playing in the game store? Uh, it all depends on whatever we hook on YouTube, uh, YouTube music player or whatnot, just whatever, whoever's, you know, leading the shift, so to speak, just whatever they want to listen to. And then treats. I mean, you've worked retail, like all your work and career, pretty much. 20 years. Yes. Yeah. How are you not sick of Christmas music? I don't know. Like, because last year I started at library and I like in November and I enjoyed Christmas again because I didn't have to deal with it and the retail world and I enjoyed listening to Christmas music again. Now, but there's also, you'll probably know that Christmas playlist forward and backwards by the time it starts playing. You'll know every song on it, probably the order of it too. Can you listen to a song on that or does it have to be Christmas songs that are not on your work playlist? So I, um, so on my Apple Music, I've created a playlist called NB Squared, Nothing But Bops, <laughs> um, which is Christmas Bops. Okay. So there are a collection of songs from the playlist at work. Uh, that I really like. Uh, Sia's Candy Cane Lane, fantastic. Um, there's a Megan Smith song called Christmas Kiss, which is great as well, um, that we play at work. Um, there's also, I, I found a Christmas album that I adore. Like my favorite Christmas album of all time uh, was released like two years ago, and it's by a musician named JD McPherson, um, and it's called Socks is the name of it and it is like a bluesy rock christmas album from like the 19 um like 60s and 70s got that feel but was literally new music released two years ago it is fan friggin fantastic and uh that's on there uh the old 97s christmas album is on there uh you know uh run dmc's on there so it's just all my favorite christmas songs so you just throw that on you hit a little shuffle and you're enjoying yourself. So let me ask you guys this. Let me ask you guys this. When is the socially acceptable time to start listening to Christmas music? Like, when will that start in your house? Is it the day after Thanksgiving? The day after Thanksgiving. We, yeah. we do one holiday at a time. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving happens. And usually the Saturday or Sunday, we're off getting our Christmas tree and getting ready for the next season. 
I can be willing to accept it during Thanksgiving week, depending on how stressful that week is. Like, we've had times where we've had to make a lot of stuff for Thanksgiving, or we were hosting, like, a Friendsgiving. No, I can't deal with Christmas and other stuff then, too. But if we have a chill week, Thanksgiving week, yeah, let's throw that on, too, and start getting into the holiday mood. I think part of it also would have to deal with, like, what's the weather outside, you know? Is there Ooh, snow on the point. ground, you know? It, it Hit or miss in upstate New York, you know? There's some years... Uh, we've already burned through, you know, a snow day before Thanksgiving break. Just something has happened and we've j- either dumped enough snow or there was like an ice rain or something like that. So, I mean, I, I guess really it's going to be to everybody's own personal tastes. I think a lot of it would have to do with the weather outside and whether or not, you know, you got the Christmas feel with all the snow on the ground. So it just goes based on if the weather outside is frightful and maybe the fire is just so delightful. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I just got in the mood where I wanted to listen to some uh, Christmas music. <laughs> just excited. Maybe I'm just looking forward to it because this has been a tough, tough year, I think, for everyone. For every, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's why a lot of people are going to be excited for the holiday season, even though it'll probably be canceled. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's got their own coping and how they've been dealing with 2020. I think that's probably part of why I've just gone absolutely crazy with all of my side jobs in addition to teaching when everything would happen with COVID and school shut down and the store shut down and then I had just started with the driving school that had shut down. I mean, I, I myself, I got nervous about like, what's my financial future going to be, blah, blah, blah. And then once everything opened up, I'm like, give me as many hours as I can. And that's why I'm just working 60, 65, 70 hours a week. And uh, everybody's just got a different coping way to deal with 2020 and you know if it's if it's Christmas tunes that are getting you fired up thinking about better years in the past hey man go for it I guess yeah I remember when we first started doing the in your houses you were telling us off air obviously how worried you were because you just moved to the new school district and right. with budget cuts and stuff like that you weren't sure like you said what your future was going to be and I think now um, hoping things are going to be better you know so I mean we're still into this new school year and waiting with the, how the governor's budget is going to be in the upcoming election and so on. So just it's a day by day process. And I think just me crazily working as much as I can now helps me to be distracted off of what can be the future. So, you know, whatever works for you is whatever works for you, man. So plus, if you if you ever do fall on hard times, you can always sell some Hasbro's to my brother and, and the, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the, uh, and the, uh, and the uh, kind of hard times promo. Right. Odd times with the gold watch, baby. Um, Kevin, did you have something you wanted to bring up? I do. I do. Um, I this is going somewhere, guys. I would like to tell you what uh, we got last night for dinner. Okay, so we got uh, sausage riggies, the spicy ones, uh, chicken riggies, the uh, sunflower chicken, and garlic bread. Would you like to know how I know what we got for dinner last night? I mean. Did you eat it? <laughs> Wouldn't you know what you're having for dinner? I did. But see, what I didn't know, because my wife made the phone call for it. She called up and, you know, just to have it re- the order ready. And then we picked it up, did the curbside pickup. And uh, right here in between my Halloween Havoc notes is our order. Oh, did you write it as part of your notes? She wrote it in my notebook in between matches. What? what is it during a match? It's like right in between two matches, yeah. 
Oh, because I was really hoping that would have been your notes in a match, and then that would have been the hot tag that match, hot tag. <laughs> and then you had to read the order during the hot tag match. Is hilarious. Oh, next time. <laughs> How was it? Was it good though? That, I mean, oh, that's delicious. So it's phenomenal. God, now I want. I'm pasta. excited to have leftovers today. What's a leftover? Well, <laughs> I just eat it all. Usually, I do. You just put and, it in my face. I'm going to eat it. And that's how I got married. Okay. So, anyways, <laughs> speaking of Halloween havoc, why don't we move on? You know, guys, it's funny. Um, we are discussing Halloween havoc. 1993 took place on October 24th. Um, so we, you know, we just missed the anniversary of it. But we are in New Orleans, Louisiana, at the Lakefront Arena. For 6,000 people, of course, the tagline is spin the wheel, make the deal, as we got the the spin the wheel, make the deal, uh, you know, gimmick once again. Uh, interesting note about this arena, guys, is I've actually been to this arena. Still was it close to like, Chattanooga? Oh, this must have been uh, WrestleMania weekend, right? WrestleMania weekend in New Orleans. This is where uh, Ring of Honor, Super Card of Honor was taking place with Cody versus Omega. Oh, nice. oh. Yeah, so it was very interesting to go to that place, and I did not realize that it it was built, you know, so long ago and stuff. Um, that uh, y- yeah, it's a it's a very small arena from being in it, especially like the concourse area, super super tiny, kind of like how it is in Syracuse at the War Memorial. Um, but the arena itself, very very nice. Um, obviously, if they're still running shows in there, it's probably had a few updates over the years, but uh. But it, it is a smaller venue, and it did feel to me um, the way it was filmed a little smaller. What did you guys think of the crowd here? For a pretty hot crowd for a couple of the matches, the the way that the hard camera was set up to pan across, you saw a lot of empty seats uh, for a few of the matches and just the way the concourse was itself and the line of seats and people able to walk by you know, at the 100 level, 200 level kind of deal. It seemed like a smaller crowd for this particular pay-per-view. I think the tagline or the notes that I saw, you know, commented about 6,000 people were there. It was an interesting show. Um, Lots of crowd heat for a few matches. A couple of decent or uh, common, very quiet, quiet spots as well during the match. The crowd just really wasn't too, too much into it. it. It'll be an interesting discussion. There was like one or two camera angles where it, it looks huge, actually. It looked like double, triple the crowd size um, from a couple angles. But it's that, that concourse at 100 level, that whatever there you're talking about that's right across from the hard camera side. And a handful of fans facing out from it. I'm like, are we at medieval times? Like, is, it this, is this that front row that's like judging the jousters? Yeah, it does give that feel off it. I do know, though, I believe that is their handicap accessible seating. Well, I feel like an ass now. <laughs> I, I think I'm not I'm not too sure, but I thought that was the way it was set up was they have all their handicap seating kind of um, in between that first level um, and, the, and the floor. Um, so, Kevin, I hope you feel good about yourself. <laughs> um, you know, last episode, guys. We talked about the intro and how they haven't changed up the intro video. And oh my God, 1993 Halloween Havoc, by far the best intro we have seen. The The kids intro was fantastic. I started watching it and I said to myself, 
did I click on the right thing? Like, right. <laughs> am I in the wrong app? Like, what am I watching? Is this Stranger Things? I'm not sure. Exactly. And I restarted it just to make sure that it was Halloween Havoc. And we get a bunch of kids going up to a mansion, being greeted by Tony Schiavone. And uh, do, you, do you guys smell that? I, I, it's a little hint of cookies or something. It's my wife's cooking. Yeah. Tony Schiavone's wife's cooking <laughs> up a nice meal. The kids go in and want to be scary. And then Tony Schiavone tears off his face and turns into a werewolf. What the hell is going on? I, I, I just blown away. He, 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 he just ripped his face right off in front of the kids. And the kids were scared. and They wanted to escape. And uh, crazy, crazy intro. Uh, so I was watching it with my, well, my kid was in the room running around crazy and he stops. He's like, I don't want to watch anything scary. I was like, trust me, trust me. There was nothing scary about this. You will not be frightened. And even with the werewolf mask and all, he's like, that's ridiculous. It's like, it is funny. <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. Isn't it? And, uh, Hey, cameo here. Um, as Frankenstein's monster, a uh, little Damien priest. Oh, that's who that was. Yeah, it looks like him, doesn't it? I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Um, you know what's funny, though, is how on Wikipedia that this intro isn't even part of their their event rundown. Don't get me wrong. I'm very happy it wasn't because it was uh, spoiler-free. But um, more of this, please. I mean, I would be... Absolutely. If they do a different one of these every Halloween Havoc... Uh, and and uh, shout out to uh, NXT here. Hopefully, they did it last night. <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. Spin the wheel, make the cookies. Spin (laughs) the wheel, make the cookies. Um, So after we get that intro video, we see Eric Bischoff dressed up as a cowboy. And then we get Tony. He's not a cowboy. He's not a cowboy, dude. What is he? General Custer. General Custer. He's a cowboy. (laughs) No. Wasn't Custer a cowboy? No. No. Well, who was Custer? (laughs) No. We went to the same school. I know. So? Lead down to Pickett. Lead down to Pickett. So he wasn't a cowboy? I thought he was like Woody from Toy Story. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Not even close. I guess, yeah, Toy Story wasn't out in 93. (laughs) I was way off. You know that, man. Why does my note say cow? Eric Bischoff was chicken riggies. What the hell? <laughs> All right, so Bischoff is some guy I've never heard of. Um, so we follow that up with uh, Tony Schiavone's dressed up like Jesse the Body Ventura, and Jesse the Body Ventura is dressed up like, I, I don't know. I forget. In I'm going to get it wrong anyways. So why don't you guys take this away? What did you think of uh, being greeted by these three? Are you guys in the Halloween mood now? Oh, the, uh, the cosplay of Tony Schiavone looking like Jesse Ventura was great. And throughout the night, Ventura is making kind of making fun, like he's looking into a mirror and so on. He rips off his little chin, chin goatee. Oh, it is great. Absolutely fantastic job. I mean, Ventura is losing it. And like on my list of great pairings, Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura is not on it until this night. They were fantastic together. Absolutely. Did you did you like them during this event more than the, the previous one? Absolutely. Yeah, they seem to be in a better groove. They seem to be really enjoying their time out there as well. And to me, I think a lot of it has to do with Tony Schiavone seems to be more comfortable in the role. 
um, than he was in the previous show. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. But then we start off with our first match of the evening. Match number one to get everyone going. We have Harlem Heat, which is Cole and Kane. Glenn uh, Jacobs. With, with, their, with their tag team partner, the Equalizer. And they're taking on the Shockmaster, Ice Train, and Charlie Norris. Everyone's favorite six-man group. <laughs> Yeah, we got to defend our titles against them. Uh, so anyways, uh, one thing I did note for this match, the size of all these guys, of course, are very large. They made the ring look so small. Tiny. I mean, the ring looked so, so tiny. Um, but anyways, why don't you uh, educator? Why don't you uh, go ahead? Take it away. What did you think of the match? Uh, so this is Harlem Heat, uh, very early in WCW when they were initially brought in, uh, from global GWF, they were the Ebony experience. They were brought in and this was their first iteration uh, or version of themselves. They were called Kane and Cole. Uh, Kane is Stevie Ray and Cole is Booker T or who we know have been known as, as those they're by their names. So during their breakdown, I am going to just refer to them as Booker T and Stevie Ray. Uh, The equalizer is uh, Dave Sullivan, who we learned as Dave Sullivan, who is, you know, the kayfabe brother of Kevin Sullivan. The Shockmaster is or was who we knew as Tugboat and Typhoon from WWE or WWF at the time. Uh, We see Ice Train now is a wrestler for WCW. The previous Halloween Havoc, we actually saw him as one of the four guys that Cactus Jack was using to train the Barbarian. He was actually one of the competitors that was body slamming the Barbarian in one of the those training videos. And Charlie Norris, I'm actually I'm not too familiar with any of his work other than his short time in WCW. I think this is just truly now at the time we're in 1993 WWF at the time was having a significant uh, success with uh, Tatanka, Chris Chavez, who was their, you know, their Native American wrestling sensation. And so this is WCW's attempt to try to, you know, have their version uh, of that particular uh, representation on TV to make sure that you know they're they're crossing all of their boxes, so to speak. Um, Charlie Norris is actually a lot bigger than I remember him being. Very tall, very lanky, uh, and quite agile considering his size. Very interesting match in regarding the, specifically the 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 Shockmaster gimmick himself and. The debacle that was of him falling through the wall and during his debut and the stormtrooper helmet. And now he's just basically, I guess, a utility pole guy that climbs up and deals with the electrical wires and so on. At least that's how he portrays himself now with this version of the character. So it was an interesting match. Hellions, I'm interested in your thoughts. What did you think before I do the breakdown? So, um, you mentioned Shockmaster, formerly known as Typhoon and as Tugboat. Um, should I call him those names? Is, is there any name I shouldn't call him? Um, I don't think you want to call him by Uncle Fred. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know how a guy that is, quote, nearly 500 pounds is going to climb the utility poles. Yeah, I don't know. 
That seems a bit dangerous. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize Equalizer was Dave Sullivan. I had to look it up. Honestly, I saw the fuzzy boots. I was like, this isn't John Nord. I know it's not John Nord. Right. Why is he wearing fuzzy boots? Basically um, trying to run that kind of gimmick, though, at the time. Yeah, because I remember Dave Evad, Evad with, yep. with the bunny and everything. Oh, my gosh. For some reason, I love that gimmick. I, I, I don't know why. I haven't rewatched it in you know probably 30 years, give or take. But I love that. Uh, question, though, something that got brought up during the match, and maybe you would know. Did they have Shockmaster like doing klutzy things on Worldwide or Power Hour or whatever? But then he was actually okay in the ring, like to play off of his trip debut. That's that's basically what it was. It's like, what are we going to do to salvage the debut, salvage the character? And yeah, just his day to day routine stuff. He was just an absolute goof, a klutz, a moron or whatever. But in the ring, supposedly he's a very, very accomplished and capable individual. My question, my question to you guys um you know, when you like you said, they, they're bringing in Charlie, Charlie Norris and playing off the Tatanka thing. Why not just call him Chuck legally? Probably legally, right? Yeah. I'm sure that was all I had. Just trying to make light that we have the Shockmaster Ice Train and Chuck Norris taking on Cole Kane and the Equalizer. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, Educator, why don't you break this one down for us? All right, so we start with the match with Ice Train and Booker T in the ring. Ice Train uh, shoulder tackles Booker T to knock him down. Booker T recovers and attempts to do a body slam to the Shockmaster, but it is reversed as Shockmaster scoops and body slams Booker T. Eventually, Booker T rolls out uh, to the corner and is able to tag in Stevie Ray. And also at this time, Ice Train had tagged into the match as well. Stevie Ray attempts to ram Ice Train into the corner, uh, but and Ice Train is able to block and reverse that effort. Charlie Norris tags into the match and comes off of the second rope with a double axe handle onto Booker T, who had tagged back in, and then also is capable of getting an arm drag takeover onto Booker T. Shockmaster's tagged into the match. He ends up draw, uh, dropping uh, a leg drop a few times over the arm of Stevie Ray to start working on the arm and shoulder of Stevie Ray. Ice Train tagged back into the match, and Harlem Heat is actually able to overcome as there is a distraction onto uh, Ice Train where uh, Stevie Ray kind of grabs him from behind, and as a result, Booker T is able to set up for a decent-looking drop kick to knock I Ice Train off of his feet. Equalizer tags in, lots of kicks and stomps onto a downed Ice Train. Eventually, Ice Train is able to get the tag to the Shockmaster, Equalizer and the Shockmaster are going back and forth. Eventually, the Shockmaster is able to overcome with a couple of shoulder blocks and a body slam onto the Equalizer. Charlie Norris tags back into the match. He attempts uh, an Irish whip and follow up with a shoulder block into the corner, but ends up missing. And we get Booker T tagged in. And instead of doing his what we we're used, used to as like the harlem axe kick to the back of the head he kind of does like a twisting roundhouse version to knock charlie norris down to the ground booker t climbs to the second rope attempts for a second rope splash onto charlie norris but charlie norris is able to roll out of the way charlie norris rolls to his corner and gets what the turns out to be the final hot tag of the match to the shock master 
Shockmaster whips uh, Booker T into the ropes, picks him up for a bear hug in the middle of the ring. Then all six guys end up getting into the ring. But in the process of picking up Booker T for the bear hug, it was a weird finish where he kind of drops down to his knees and does more of a modified spine buster onto Booker T. And the referee does end up counting a one, two, three pinfall with the Shockmaster pinning Booker T to finish the match. I was wondering if that bear hug slam was an actual finisher. I, I actually kind of liked it. I think that could be a good, you know, move for a big guy like him. Uh, I, mean, I thought, sorry, go ahead. It would be if it was set up for like an impact, like he was doing a jawbreaker kind of deal by jumping up in the air and then landing on his knees. I just, I don't see when you're bear hugging someone, you know, around their waist, you pick them up and then you do that clutch jump up and then drop down. I just, I don't see too much of the impact on the person that is, you know, taking the maneuver that was locked into the bear hug. But if he ends up doing it more of, you know, like a spine buster slam, to me, that would make a little bit more sense to it. It was an interesting finish. Of course, you know, they're still trying to figure out the Shockmaster character. It's only been about two months since his original debut, and they're still figuring things out. Uh, but it was a fun opener overall to start the show. Yeah, you're right. I could see I got you in a bear hug. I'm wearing you down. And then just like a front slam, he lands on top of you as well. Go for a pin. That would, for, you know, the near 500 pounder there would look devastating. Uh, I thought Booker T was showing something already. Like he, you could just see more talent in him than Stevie Ray, I'll say. It was like interesting, I, interesting gear that they were wearing, not the long tights with the double strap singlet top. It was almost like they had a short sleeve dress shirt on in the colors of the Harlem heat kind of deal. Um, interesting how Booker T had the half red, half black, you know, tights, whereas Stevie Ray had the full black tights. So kind of like separating them apart as not being twins as they were originally brought in, supposedly being a set of twins and then later on down the road, their characters develop and they're, you know, considered brothers and uh, as Booker T and Stevie Ray. And they ended up having an amazing run in WCW. Uh, was Shockmaster shockingly uh, over with the crowd? They really seemed to pop for him coming in. Who I'm trying to think. It, it's It was word. so different looking at him in the gear, in the jeans, in the the sleeveless button-down denim shirt that he ended up having to open up. He just he looked a lot bigger than I remember him in, during his run as Typhoon, during his run as, you know, as Tugboat. And he ended up, after his run here with WCW, he ended up going back and doing a short run with WWF, Right around the time when Yokozuna was feuding with the Earthquake, um, when they had done that sumo stuff, and I guess Yo uh, Earthquake ended up getting injured or something, and then Typhoon ended up coming in. It was like post-WrestleMania 10 and had like a short maybe month, month and a half feud, mostly superstar stuff that we ended up seeing. There's There's some talent in here, but there's also a lot of garbage. <laughs> Like, there's a lot of sloppy ring work in this match. Uh, Charlie Norris has the most lukewarm hot tag I've ever seen. 
just so lackadaisical. Um, I, I, I don't get what it is with these mis- you know, mix up, throw anyone out there, six man tag matches to open the show. Um, I did appreciate, you know, uh, two big, not really muscular guys fighting it out as then the Shockmaster and Equalizer kept fighting after the pinfall and just beating the hell out of each other. It looked like two drunk uncles on Christmas. No, okay. There's not much. To yeah, this. I don't. I thought maybe you'd you'd elaborate no, on that. Yeah, exactly. No, there's just not much to this. All right. Don't call him Uncle Fred, Kevin. Don't I, call him I just, Uncle Fred. I decided to hold back on saying I'm shocked they didn't make Charlie Norris wear war paint. You don't do that to Chuck Norris, okay? <laughs> so why don't we follow that up with uh, the, the cowboy Eric Bischoff? Uh, he's interviewing the special guest referee. Uh, Terry Taylor, uh, no longer Terrence. Back to Terry Taylor. It's weird in that we've we've been talking about you know Terrence Taylor uh, from the York Foundation a few episodes back, having a great match with Bobby Eaton, and then he after the whole York Foundation thing ran its course, he ended up doing WCW's version of the Million Dollar Man as he was the Taylor Made Man. You know, coming to the ring with uh, very similar garb and getup. And he ended up having, and then he was released by WCW, and he ended up having a uh, a short run return back to WWF. I think he had a run-in at the a Royal Rumble. I, can't, I think it was the 93 Royal Rumble. I could be mistaken, but he was an unannounced participant in either the 92 or 93 Royal Rumble. Um and then now he's back in WCW, but he's back. I don't as not. I think he's more like an office backstage producer role at this point. But he's still kind of part time wrestling, kind of like a Mike Graham kind of deal that we got used to. And a few years later with WCW, so it's interesting to see. Like I, I just I don't remember the storyline of how all of a sudden he's being appointed and is a part of the flair rude match we just we get this interview and he's trying to you know talk about how he's you know stepping up and he's had controversial actions in the past and now he's going to be in the in the ring and have the opportunity to call it down the middle and be fair and square about everything so just weird how he's just transitioned as, as what we've seen him through the years on our halloween havoc episodes uh, what's even weirder is how much Treats obviously did not pay attention because they flat out say Eric Bischoff is General Custer during this promo. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. To That's fake news. <laughs> that is fake, fake news. Uh, so anyways, let's go into match number two on the night. Uh, actually, Kevin, were you excited for this match? In what way? Because your cousin. Assassin? The masked assassin. Cousin <laughs> to the masked library. Right. Makes sense. <laughs> I did not see that coming. You're uh, part of the masked family. I, well, as the announcer said, when it's Halloween, you hang out with people with masks on. Right. Yeah. So anyways, we get Paul Orndorff with the masked assassin. Number one. How many were there, Kevin? Masked assassin. Oh, geez. I'm trying to think the last family reunion. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's taking on Ricky Steamboat. And, of course, we get the the fire coming out. Always a great entrance to see. Um, so what would you guys think of match number two on the card? 
So uh, apparently this was a replacement. Paul Orndorff was not originally scheduled to be in the match. The original competitor ended up having an injury. So Ricky Steamboat taking on Paul Orndorff. I don't know if you, you guys picked up on it. When Orndorff starts walking his entrance to the ring and then huge crowd heat to the masked assassin coming out with him, like the crowd was just going absolutely nuts booing healing hard with the fact that all of a sudden now uh, apparently Paul Orndorff is being advised or aligned with uh, the masked assassin. So the masked assassin is uh, from a seventies tag team, the assassins, maybe early eighties as well. Um, This is actually Jody Hamilton who was a uh, behind the scenes uh, trainer prepping people for WCW. He had his own school and he's also the father of WWE. Well, and then here in the, at the time, WCW referee, Nick Patrick. So it was interesting to see the masked assassin being chastised by his own son, who was refereeing the match. Uh, Huge, huge crowd heat uh, during the entrance for Paul Orndorff. Another thing that stood out to me, and it's just something that growing up and watching, I didn't really notice it. But then now going back as an adult and, and learning about some injuries and stuff that had happened. I always remembered Paul Orndorff in his WWF run as being this masculine, jacked individual, you know, very much almost rivaling Hogan, especially during his heel run in 86 and then his brief face run with Oliver Humperdinck right before he left in 87. And I wasn't aware of an arm, a shoulder, a nerve injury that he ended up having that basically caused significant much muscle atrophy to the right side of his body. And going back and watching this match, it's super obvious now seeing his whole like right side both his his shoulder, his arm, and even his leg just beginning to look very visibly thinner and smaller uh, compared to the left side of his body. Um, absolute huge crowd heat for the assassin. Uh, Ricky Steamboat's entrance. I, I remember listening to Tom Pritchard's, or Tom Pritchard's, um, I'm sorry, Bruce Pritchard's podcast about Steamboat's second run with the WWF after his NWA world title run and flair and then feuding with Luger for the U.S. title. When he returned, how they sent Steamboat and paid a lot of money for him to go train and learn how to you know, breathe fire and spit out whatever fuel he was doing to cause the fireball. And now WCW is taking advantage of all that training and whatnot. So he's able to come out and breathe the fire to wow the crowd. Um Great, great uh, intro uh, for both men. Lots of huge crowd heat for uh, Paul Orndorff and the Assassin. It feels like this is what Heroes of Wrestling was marketed to us as before we actually watched it. Okay. Here's some guys that are past their prime, their peak, but still have a lot to give and a lot to show and can still put on an entertaining match. It's just not going to be in the world title picture. Um, Orndor, give him credit for building his body up there. Yeah. You know, and, and doing everything he can. Is he a lot smaller on that side? Of course, but 
did anything suffer because of it? Like, it was still an entertaining match. He still did the best he can. Absolutely. And the thing was, and you could, if you watch the match, he knew how to turn his body so that his atrophied side of the body was away from the camera. So it wouldn't be picked up on as much. He'd always turn his body and either face the the crowd in another way or would talk to the, the official in a way so that, you know, he was trying to mask and he was being super smart about it, trying to mask, you know, the injury and the, the result of the degradation of the tissues breaking down his body. He, he, he was doing this best he could. And then this has got to be because, I mean, we saw so much like during Monday Night Air and even now with WWE wanting to own names. And if you're on Twitch or Cameo or whatever, the fact that they're letting people take the the gimmick and the gear and everything that WWF paid for to another company just shows right. a different era. Right. All right. So why don't we uh, educator? Why don't you go ahead and break this one down for us? All right. So. Hot tag. Are you kidding me? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the Kevin Hellions Halloween Havoc Breakdown. I did not expect it to be this one. It better be some chicken riggy talk. I I absolutely did not expect it to be this one. All right. Okay. So for, for any new listeners, these are my notes as I wrote them, as writing the show. I do not know which match will be the hot tag of the week. So my notes are the same for every match. <laughs> I do not think I had to make it more or less entertaining. Paul Orndorff with Assassin number 1 versus Ricky Steamboat. When it's Halloween, you hang out with people with masks on. Fire-breathing Steamboat. Orndorff always looks old, but the same age. Is Paul's right arm smaller? Paul dominating beats Ricky on the floor and the runway. Ricky runs down the ramp, dives over the top, and Paul dodges the high cross body. Ricky locks on a hammerlock and bends it at every angle. Feet flipped. Great work. Looks devastating. Ricky runs Paul's arm into a post. Head first is a disqualification. Why is Paul taking this kind of punishment? Ricky stretching Paul's fingers apart, which is illegal. Announcers keep commenting on this new aggressive version of Ricky Steamboat. Paul gets the advantage back, beats up Ricky on the outside. Both men go for crossbodies and land in a heap. Paul hangs onto the ropes for the pin, too, but won't let go, ref kicking his hands away. Ricky from the top, elbow to runway on Paul. Atomic drop from runway over the ropes into the ring. Chop off of the top rope. Two count. Cover. Paul bridges up. Catapult into turnbuckle. Ricky rolls up. Two count. High cross body. Assassin distracts. Two count. Paul with a kidney punch. Nick Patrick tries to hold back Ricky. Ricky pushes him away. Paul tosses him over the top. Assassin puts something in his mask. Headbutts Ricky. Rookie's out and doesn't meet 10 count. And that has been your Kevin Hellion's Halloween Havoc Breakdown. Now that was something. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, now if your gimmick, when you're wearing the mask, would you put like a VHS tape in your, (laughs) under your mask and headbutt people that way? I did that night. (laughs) 
crowd was super hot for this particular match, uh, going back and forth. Uh, I thought this was a great match. Possibly, may we may be discussing, uh, you know, match of the night. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, a few others that could potentially be in the running as well. Uh, I liked the finish in this. I, I know that I've never been a fan of like DQ or countout finishes, but the involvement of the masked assassin gimmicking his, you know, is his mask itself. And then I love commentary afterwards. Jesse Ventura talking about look how how stretched out that mask is because Hamilton was a big boy, big dude. How could he fit anything up in that mask? And, you know, there's a replay showing him stuffing it through one of the eye holes, actually, uh, putting something into the mask, doing that, grabbing from behind, headbutting him in the back of the head, Steamboat, and dropping him down. Uh, and Steamboat initially selling it like he was just murdered as he just flops right down on the floor. I, I thought it was a great finish, and I, I like this pairing of the Assassin and Paul Orndorff. Now, would you say that... Uh... Paul's win is tainted, though, because of the relationship between the referee and his manager. Who knows? Certainly, it's not anything that's acknowledged ever on TV. They did later, though, right? I I think way down the road, like after he's um, done with the management and so on, uh, being an on-screen character. I think it's like mentioned in commentary, but not like there isn't a segment dedicated to it or anything like that. I, I do appreciate the WCW announcers in the course of our Halloween Havoc series. There is definitely more emphasis on breaking down wrestling moves, wrestling psychology, why this move leads into that move, subtleties of it, more, much more so than we saw in WWF. And I, I enjoy that Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. It's funny because I, I didn't expect to, to bring this up during this match, but going through the In Your House series and now watching the Halloween Havocs, it's crazy to me how much more personality the refs have in WCW. Yeah. And you have the individual refs and stuff like that. Obviously, now, if you look at it, I mean, the refs are interchangeable when it comes to the WWE, the way they count everything. I like when you have different refs with different personalities, whether that's Don't Call Me Pee Wee, whether that's Nick Patrick, um, I don't know what it is. I think it, it leans more into the sports feel um, where you'll hear about this all the time, especially in the NBA um, sports gamblers and betters. Not that I, you know, partake in that. No, um, but uh, a lot of times who is the referee colors, how they're going to bet right. because they know the tendencies of this person calls it tighter. This person's more loose with it. Um, and I wish you would see that more in, um, in professional, you know, wrestling, I think the issue now, um, AEW lets, you know, their people have a lot of personality. I just think all of their refs are very loose with how they call the action. I mean, I wish they had a very stern referee in AEW that calls it right by the book. One, two, three, getting people out of the ring when it comes to the tag matches and stuff like that. Um, rather than, you know, always letting the wrestlers, kind of you know have their own free reign right um and, and then that would ultimately add a a different dimension to 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 the show um you know you know what i mean when, when i when i say that that you know they really do show their personalities and stuff like that um much much better in these wcw shows personalities but not taking attention away from the wrestlers right. in the match exactly and it's a fine line and they do it well 
you know, not getting themselves over at the expense of taking away from the story that's attempting to be told in the match. That is that fine, that fine line. You know, you got you got Nick Patrick who like when he drops down for a pinfall count, he's reaching his hand under the closest shoulder and then he's counting. So he's like feeling for the shoulder being flat on the mat. You know, we, we don't see that from from Anderson or any of the other referees that are involved. So, yeah, they all have their own different styles, which makes them unique for what they are, as opposed to the practical interchangeability that you see today on on both Monday and Wednesday and Friday. So, yeah. And I like I said, I really like that that personal individ- individuality of the referees. It's more sports like because sure, the rules are the same, but there's interpretation of, of the rules um, you know, that, that are changed and some people will let, you know, um, let them fight more than, uh, than other people, which would call it right down the middle. So, um, yeah, just kind of something I, I, I like to see. So anyways, why don't we, uh, we'll throw it to Jesse, the body Ventura and his body double Tony Schiavone. Uh, and they're really, uh, at the table talking about the gold belt and, and what is going on with that. So educator, what is going on with the gold belt? What are they talking about when it's time, uh, when it's coming to, um, what is seen as official and, uh, you know, the international body, all this sort of stuff. So, um, when Ric Flair had initially left WCW back in uh, mid 91 uh, WCW was still a part of the NWA. So he, he was recognized as the NWA world heavyweight champion. Um, even though on TV, they refer to it as a WCW championship and so on. Flair leaves, takes the big gold belt with him to WWF. That's when the whole debacle of Luger winning the title and they didn't have a physical championship in the cage against Barry Windham and all that stuff happened. And eventually WCW, NWA, they end up suing WWF and Ric Flair regarding the rights to that physical championship title. Flair, you know, still complaining about he's had a $25,000 deposit that I think Jim Hurd refused to, you know, pay back, which is why he took the belt with him. So all that stuff happened. Eventually, WWF were given a cease and desist or something along those lines, and they stopped using that particular title. And eventually, it was given back to WCW or the NWA. And then we've talked about how the NWA relaunched the singles division. Masachono ended up winning the championship. And then Masachono lost the title to the Great Muda. The Great Muda then ended up losing the championship to Barry Windham. And then Barry Windham then lost the NWA title to Ric Flair back in 93 when Flair had returned back to WCW. And then along the spring and the summer, then there was a, the, the working agreement that WCW had with still showcasing the NWA title on TV. Um, it, that, that working agreement ended. And the physical title belt was still, you know, Ric Flair's. So they ended up rebranding the title as the WCW, like, International Heavyweight Championship. And they only started, then they started calling the WCW title uh, that Vader had uh, the WCW Championship that he had won back from Ron Simmons and had been the champion with uh, ever since. So basically now it's 
a, a weird way of now there's technically two championships, two main singles titles, very akin to how WWF had the WWE championship and then the World Heavyweight Championship. And so now there is this international executive committee of members supposedly from other countries throughout the world. And it's even referenced in Asia, Japan, Germany, Europe, you know, so on that are now recognizing the big gold belt that ravishing Rick rude has. Cause he had defeated flair for it um, as a world heavyweight championship. So we are now going to be referring to the big gold belt in WCW's eyes as the world heavyweight championship. Eventually it gets renamed as the international heavyweight championship and Vader's title is now just the WCW championship. And now we have two main singles titles. (laughs) It is confusing. It is odd. It's also nowadays, it's not that much different than we have a raw world champion. We have a SmackDown world champion. We have two world champions in WWE, but at the time, super confusing then we have is it officially a world title or is it just a title and we maybe it could be a run-in discussion later or something like that but the the debates over what is and is not a world title have gone on for years and still go on and we've had the debates on our own um but i i do think there's a difference between what the company officially says and what the fans have accepted right. as true. All right. So why don't we, we, why don't we move on to a uh, segment number match number three on the night. It is the British bulldog taking on Lord Steven Regal. And of course, Lord Steven Regal has Sir William with him. And this is for the first title of the night, uh, which is for the WCW world television championship. Um, and we get Michael Buffer as the uh, ring announcer. So trying to give the title matches a different feel with having uh, Michael Buffer instead of Gary Michael Capetta um, doing the announcements. And what did you guys think of this world television title match? Uh, I love the idea of the title being defended in a certain block of time. Uh, I think that the 15-minute time limit window is like the perfect duration of time uh, for this type of title defense. I know uh, there are some uh, times in which there's like 10-minute time limits, and I know for the more recent iteration of a television title, the NWA on NWA Power did a 6-minute, 5-second time limit deal. I think 15 minutes is a fantastic amount of time. Gives the guys plenty of time to do a story and get get whatever in there to tell that story. This match didn't seem long, even though it went to a time limit draw. Great back and forth between the power of the Bulldog and the wrestling uh, capabilities and, and the humanship of uh, Lord Steven Regal. I, I enjoyed this match a lot. The T. It gives the TV title something special to make it unique. Hey, you got a 15 minute time limit. That's segment TV. We can do 15 minutes in between commercials. If you're good enough to defeat someone and win this title in that 15 minutes, then you deserve it. But it separates it from the US. It separates it from world. It, it creates a, a a division pretty much in a way over the TV title. And it it's so subtle, but makes all the difference. I was 
I was impressed with a lot of things in this match. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear you guys break it down. So, uh, educator, why don't you, uh, you know, break this one down for us? So we have the British Bulldog uh, being announced from Leeds, England. We have Lord Stephen Regal coming to the ring with Sir William. For fans that do not know, Sir William, um, his assistant is uh, Bill Dundee uh, from Memphis Wrestling and USWA and so on. Uh, we see at the start of the match, the British Bulldog and William Re- or Stephen Regal. I'm going to be calling him William Regal because that's how I remember him more uh, from his WWF run. Uh, so, uh, Stephen Regal and Bulldog reversing wrist locks back and forth. We see Bulldog do a very impressive headstand, like head spring, uh, to escape a wrist lock from Regal twice. Uh, at one point, Bulldog does like a cartwheel as well. Uh, as a mechanism of of a mis, uh, an escape from a wrist lock, and after that cartwheel escape, he ends up doing a monkey flip to uh, Stephen Regal uh, for an offensive maneuver. We see the bulldog and uh, Stephen Regal do some very stiff looking headlock takeovers and snap da- snapmare takedowns, uh, just back and forth with each other. We see at one point the British Bulldog start working on William or Stephen Regal's legs and does a surfboard to Regal, stretching him back. At one point, Sir William ends up getting on the apron to distract the Bulldog, to cause the Bulldog to release that surfboard as Regal was just not going to be able to escape it on his own. We see the Bulldog do a fr- uh, flying body press uh, for a two count. As the Bulldog uh, runs the ropes again to do another offensive maneuver, Regal ends up catching the Bulldog in the gut with a knee lift. The Bulldog attempts to do a sunset flip, only gets a two count uh, on uh, Stephen Regal. Stephen Regal counters back, working a reverse chin lock to begin wearing down the Bulldog. He's on top of Bulldog's body. We see the Bulldog attempt to recover, and Irish whips uh, Stephen Regal into the corner. He ends up charging into the corner to avalanche clothesline Regal. But again, Regal catches the Bulldog with a knee into the gut. We see a lot of mat working uh, from Steven Regal as he's got uh, Bulldog lying face down on the canvas. He's got like a half Nelson and cross face uh, onto the upper body of the Bulldog. And he ends up doing a double leg grapevine as well to kind of tie the Bulldog up, continue to work him down. Eventually, the Bulldog is able to escape and hits a running clothesline. He hits a standing vertical suplex and is able to pick up Regal over his shoulder and does his known running power slam, uh, but only is able to get a two count. And in the background, we're hearing as we're nearing the end of the match, the announcer is calling that there's 30 seconds left, 20 seconds left, and so on. With about 10 seconds left in the match, the Bulldog picks up Regal for a decent-looking pile driver drops Regal down quite stiff looking onto the mat for that pile driver rolls over for the uh, pinfall count. And the way that Randy Anderson had been positioned, he had to run around the guys and then leap over. He starts counting one, two, and then we hear the dinging, the ringing of the bell as he was about to drop the hand for the three. Everyone's looking around. The referee's like, "Was what's up? Was that a time fall finish or, or a time expiration finish? And it ends up being the 15-minute time limit runs through, and uh, Lord Stephen Regal retains his television title. So, Davey Boy, 
actually to go back to the previous match uh twice here steve boy and ricky steamboat both look like they uh kept everything wwf made on their way over to wcw because david boy's got that uh his cape or whatever you want to call it there and uh about wrestlers looking old even though they're not like paul orner came out and there's there's the muscle loss but as far as his face like he's always had an older looking face so even though you know many years have passed his face kind of looks the same it, it sucks to have an old looking face when you're younger but as you get older you just look the same lord steven regal is 25 in this match that is absolutely absurd one because he looks older because he just always has but two, how ridiculously good he is. Steven Regal is leading my Halloween Havoc run of I can't believe how talented this guy is and that I never realized how amazing he is. I was just in awe seeing how everything he does in this match, how, controlling the flow of it, the moves, the counters, the selling, the stuff he would lock, lock on. I was absolutely amazed by him. Um, and I, and Regal was someone that I couldn't stand when I was younger watching wrestling. I hated him. I was just annoyed by him. I hated the gimmick. He just bothered me. And I was so turned off because he's doing his job well as a heel that I didn't pay attention to what he actually did in the ring. And, and that's detriment to me here. Uh, and then we also, like we mentioned before um with halloween havoc graphics us watching it weekly is different because we'll see oh geez they just used this graphic but if it was a year later would you have really remembered a year later that they use the same graphic a year later would i remember time limit draws i don't know but weekly the time limit draws i'm like again are you kidding me we're doing this again but, you know, from Halloween to Halloween, yeah, I probably would have forgotten. And I probably would have been like, oh, what a great match. It ended in a draw. Oh, that was fantastic. And they had a much better reaction than, I can't believe we're doing this all over again. Yeah. Uh, I have a note later because there's so many going through this whole, you know, Halloween Havoc. We have seen so many bad finishes to matches. It is so friggin' annoying. Not the time limit draws. I don't mind the draws and stuff like that. I actually like that. But when you're thinking pay-per-view, you're thinking blow off matches. You're thinking you're going to get endings. There's so many screwy finishes on. It seems like every show we get screwy finish after screwy finish after screwy finish. Um, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out why I'm trying to figure out. Is it because we are at a secondary pay-per-view and our big pay-per-view is the next like i was thinking oh maybe they have the blow-off match at starcade because that's their their big show and and they're doing that but that's not even the case because right now you have all like the battle bowls and different things like that that have been going on at starcades um so you don't even get the payoff to the actual matches there it's just it's the way their booking was and it is so friggin' annoying to see that it's like having an amazing meal and you love it and it tastes fantastic and the company's wonderful and you have this great experience and then you have diarrhea that night and it ruins it ruins everything that came beforehand we have this great match and a poopy ending so it ruins everything good that came beforehand <laughs> kevin's uh on fire with these uh, literally with on these fire. analogies 
<laughs> All righty. Next segment, baby. <laughs> All right. So we got Woody the Cowboy, a.k.a. Eric Bischoff, coming out for Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal. Uh, and we get Vader spinning the wheel, and it lands on Texas Deathmatch. Um, so now we know that we will have the Texas Deathmatch between Vader and Cactus Jack uh, later in the evening. Uh, anything to cover from that? Um, I'm just I'm surprised that Vader didn't slice his hand open on the knife. That was the, <laughs> uh, the gimmick pointer for this. Um, it's it's cool in the the from the spin the wheel last year with Sting. And Jake Roberts, they've definitely updated the wheel. They've changed it so it wasn't the same wheel. They weren't reusing the same props as last year. You could definitely tell that the wheel was gimmicked considering how fast it was spinning and moving. And then all of a sudden it just went at a constant rate and then just stopped right on the Texas Deathmatch. So, um, yeah, so going crazy with a Texas Deathmatch with Cactus and Vader for the main event. Now, for for the wheel... Am I the only one that thought it was at the top that I was supposed to be looking with and not the dagger to the, the side? Because that's what yeah. it was last year, yeah. But when Vader spun the wheel, you could see that the little knife gimmick on the side for the pointer, it like was on a spring and it kept going back and forth. So I was kind of fixated on that as the wheel was starting to spin around. I'm like, oh, okay, there we go. It's pointing on the right now. All right, and then match number four on the night. Guys. It's not a Halloween Havoc, and we don't have stunning Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes in some sort of match. This is the third one in a row. Third one, I know. Where they've had it. They've had the two tag matches, and now they're singles match. Um, And this is for the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Stunning Steve Austin takes on the natural Dustin and Rhodes. Uh, Once again, we get Michael Buffer introducing, and that, that is the theme. He introduces every title match. Um, so what did you guys think of this one? Uh, was this their best match that we've seen so far between them? Uh, um, the in-ring work was good. Uh, two things that stood out for me in this match. Uh, the first, and I don't know if it was just a mistake or there was a missed cue or they decided to change plans. Did you guys notice when during Austin's entrance, he was listed as being managed by Colonel Robert Parker? Yep. And the, there was no, which eventually happened at Starcade um, and down the road. And Martin Parker ended up becoming his manager, but there was absolutely no Colonel Robert Parker involved or seen anywhere um, in the match whatsoever. And then my frustration would be the screwy ending with, and the, the miscues, the timing. It just, it didn't portray well, very well on television. Uh, whatsoever, but good Matt back and forth physical match between the two. Looks like they had really, really good chemistry. It's crazy to think, all right, this is 1993. And then we're talking about five years later, uh, Austin, not wise, the rattlesnake as stone cold, not really wanting to be plugged into a program with Dustin as the, uh, gold dust character in WWF thing that really jumped out to me here is and and maybe it goes back to the debate over the big gold is tony shivani has no idea how many title matches are on the show like over the course of the pay-per-view he says there are three four and five title matches on the show yeah <laughs> <laughs> i gotta it's, it's uh, well like 
educator was saying with the Colonel Robert Parker thing, it's that WCW quality control issue. Right. It's certainly not, you know, like we see towards their end, but it's already there. There's already little things. It's like, you know, someone should have caught this. Right. It's just the attention to detail. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, so uh, educator, why don't you break this one down for us? Alrighty, we see the start of the match with Steve Austin attempting to slap Dustin in the face to start the match. Um, afterwards, they both men end up locking up with one another, and then Austin slaps Dustin yet again for the second time. Austin tries to do a Boston Crab onto Dustin, and Dustin keeps rolling back and forth, trying to use his legs to not really to avoid being turned over. And eventually Dustin is able to roll through and cause Austin to get flung off to the side uh, to be able to stop uh, that submission maneuver. Austin ends up recovering and hits a very uh, a back elbow onto Dustin and then a right hand onto Dustin to knock him down. We see Austin body slamming Dustin Rhodes and then Dustin is able to recover and follow up with a snap nair takeover. Austin is working a headlock and ends up throwing Dustin in the roads. Dustin rebounds and hits a drop kick as Austin is running back from the ropes. We see Austin with a lot of Flair, Ric Flair-like backhand chops to the chest of Dustin. Austin Irish whips Dustin to the opposing corner and follows with a knee, a running knee that he was going to hit Dustin with, but Dustin moves out of the corner, and Austin ends up crashing and burning hard into the turnbuckle and then rolls uh, through the ropes onto the floor itself. So now Dustin begins to work a lot with Austin's injured knee in the match. He ends up hitting a shin breaker onto Austin and then a step over toe hold to continue to work the knee. Mid-match, uh, Austin ends up hitting a kick to the below the belt to the groin area when referee Nick Patrick wasn't really paying attention, I guess. Causes Dustin to just crumble down in a heap. We see Dustin eventually come back with a flurry of punches and forearms and elbows. He ends up back body dropping Austin and then hits a running flying clothesline onto Austin and does get a two count from the, the official. Dustin tries to set up for a rebounding running bulldog off of the ropes, but Austin ends up picking him up and when he's in a headlock and ends up dropping Dustin over the top turnbuckle, kind of crotch dropping him over the turnbuckle. Dustin flails and falls backwards into the ring with a little assistance from Nick Patrick trying to unloosen his legs because Austin had tied him up almost into like a tree of woe. And we see Austin stomping away on Dustin as he's on the ground. At one point, we see Dustin able to hit a roll-up and then an inside cradle uh, pinfall attempt, both for two counts. Austin attempts to uh, Irish whip Dustin in the ropes. He catches him to try to do a stun gun throat drop over the top rope. But Dustin is able to essentially punch his way out, and Austin falls back as if he's receiving the Thez press. And Dustin gets a two count from that attempt. Austin with a double leg takedown um, and ends up putting one of his feet onto the ropes for extra leverage. And referee Nick Patrick does count a three count. So we have a pinfall from referee Nick Patrick. So Austin believes he has now won the match. 
And now Austin is rolling around the ring and he's searching the corner. He's searching the announce table. He's looking for the WCW US title that he believes he has won. But commentary is making mention how Nick Patrick has now waved off that pinfall attempt as he realizes that Austin's foot was on the rope. But that doesn't get communicated at all to Austin. So Austin is essentially not realizing that the match has been restarted as he's still looking around for the championship title to celebrate. Dustin realizes the match has been signaled for a restart. So as Austin's back is to Dustin, as he's looking for the championship title belt for a celebration victory, Dustin rolls up Austin from behind and gets a three count pinfall attempt. And uh, Dustin is now all of a sudden declared the winner post match. Austin finds the championship title belt that was put into the ring by one of the ringside attendants. Since the match is now officially over, Austin picks up the championship belt and completely clobbers Dustin over the head with the championship title belt and ends up busting him open over the eye. And Austin then leaves ringside with the championship belt in his possession. Not a fan of this screwy finish. Um, just the poor communication. It wasn't did what didn't portray very, very well on the pay-per-view on television to the viewer. Agree on finish, but, uh, like we were saying, we've seen these two fight multiple times now. This match is evident in this match because it's clear that they just were like, we know each other. We're familiar with each other. Let's go out and have a good time. I'm going to sell for you. You're going to sell for me. We'll make each other look good. We'll do this goofy thing to make the boys pop. We'll do this thing for the crowd. You know, um, it, it, it was a very, it seemed like a very selfless match from both of them to work together and put on something great and have a good time out there. And then again, an ending that just kind of ruins all of that. I was enjoying the hell of it. I, it felt like I was seeing other people have fun and it made me have fun watching it. But yeah, that ending, I, I went back and watched it. I'm like, I'm not entirely sure what happened here just now. Yeah, and I just want to point it up too. I mean, we had the finished with Kevin's cousin, the masked assassin. <laughs> then we had the time limit draw and then we have this finish. Three right in a row. Where you're not getting a clean victory. And I'm sure those are the only three matches on here that's going to have a weird finish. Oh, yeah, you do it in the middle, and then it saves the ending. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. you, you know, way. we're going to end nice and clean. I, I already mm-hmm. feel it coming up. So um, so anyways, why don't we follow that up? Uh, this is the first time that Starcade does not, um, you know, does not foul Halloween Havoc because we have the Battle Bowl pay-per-view itself now. Um, they took that concept off of Starcade, and now it's just its own event in November. 32 random participants are going to be put into 16 teams, 16 teams who will battle in an individual tag match. And the winners of those tag matches advance to a battle royal pay-per-view or battle royal uh, finale where the winner wins the coveted battle bowl ring. All right. And then we follow that up with a video that leads into our next match. Um, and the next match is for the tag team championship. It is, uh, the Nasty Boys with Missy Hyatt taking on Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Two Scold- <laughs> and Two Cold Scorpio with 
Teddy Long. Uh, my question is, the video is showing Bagwell and Too Cold winning the tag titles the night before on Worldwide. Why have that match if they're on the pay-per-view the next night? It certainly was an episode that was taped, I'm sure, many, many weeks in advance. And now they are playing that episode and that title change on television. So, yeah, we have a supposed uh, recent title match that ended up with uh, being a victory for Too Cold and Bagwell winning the championships. That was put on WCW Saturday night, the night before the pay-per-view the very next day. So interesting booking. I'm sure that those matches were taped weeks, if not a month or so in advance. And just by the time everything's portrayed on TV, trying to get more hype for the new champions now coming into for their first title defense against the challengers. Now the nasty boys. And even though logically there's a, why would you have a title change on Saturday and then pay-per-view of these teams Sunday? It does add to the, uh, the the magic trick of anything can happen in pro wrestling. Oh my gosh, I can't believe the titles changed the night before a pay-per-view. That's crazy. What's going to happen next? That adds a little excitement to it and, you know, unpredictability. We end up seeing some... Every so often. Yeah, and you know, and it's not like, you know, WCW is guilty. Uh, only WCW is guilty of this. This ended up happening um one or two nights before SummerSlam 94 where the Head Shrinkers were supposed to be defending the WWF tag team titles against uh, I believe it was IRS and Bam Bam Bigelow on the pay-per-view, but a night or two before Diesel and Shawn Michaels supposedly beat them at a house show. And became tag team champions when Diesel was supposed to be defending the Intercontinental title against Razor. So we got Diesel coming to the ring at SummerSlam after winning the tag titles the night or two before. And now causing a tag title match to be canceled on the pay-per-view on very short notice. So it's just it's interesting booking, so to speak. And I'm sure, like I said, the, uh, the sequence of the WCW Saturday nights were probably taped very, very well in advance. And just by the time they all played out on TV to develop the storyline that it would have been better maybe if they had won the tag titles the week before so that they ended up having, you know, eight days, the nasty boys to prepare for their rematch at Halloween havoc. And they could have hyped it better. I'm sure it was just a victim of just the calendar dates and how everything rolled up by the time they started airing the, uh, the matches. Okay. And then I have, I just have two notes for this. Um, because my notes are a lot different than your guys' notes. Uh, Missy <laughs> Hyatt as the Nasty Boys uh, manager, valet. Um, I did not realize how much Miley Cyrus stole her look from Missy oh, Hyatt as crazy, the Nasty right? Boys valet. I, as I as I see her coming out, I'm like, holy crap! That looks like you know Miley Cyrus. <laughs> I'm now because if you look, go back to again what was taped. And what had happened with Bagwell and Scorpio winning the notes, you know, Missy has or at least appears to have super long hair. Now I just I question how long did Missy Hyatt either have extensions or was wearing a wig and had short hair. It's just a significant change in her look with the now the super short version of her hair uh, compared to what we're used to. And then my um, my other note is Kevin. Do you think if we threw cardboard on the ground that you could outdance 
Buff Bagwell. Buff Bagwell. <laughs> Marcus Bagwell, Alexander yeah. Bagwell. Because there is a part when the when the match is starting where Two Cold Scorpio does his dance and everything, and it looks on rhythm, on time, and then they throw it to Bagwell, who does a little shimmy, and then he just flexes because he's a good-looking dude with a million-dollar body. So, uh, so, Kevin, do you think you could beat Marcus Alexander Bagwell in a dance-off? Oh, man. Because I've seen, I have seen you dance, and there is an infamous video, which I would like to get online. i got to find it. Of you dancing with a giant Santa Claus at my parents' house. Oh gosh, I forgot about that. I thought you were going to talk about when we would uh, go out to a, a bar nightclub thing, and uh, I would always dance to "It's Tricky." When we were at the Strand. Yep. You're dancing to "It's Tricky." Yep. You guys would put it on just to get me out there. That's the only song that you would dance to. I would. I would. I did a Running Man. I did the shopping cart. You did all the basic like white guy dance moves. <laughs> like yep. the, the yep. white guy. I don't know how to dance. So let me do this white guy dance move. I, I can't dance like Too Cold Scorpio. You know, we have many other things in common. You know, if you've ever been in a locker room with either of us, you know. But uh, I do think I can dance better than Bagwell, though. Yeah, you guys do have very similar gym bags. So, But Bagwell has it over me, though, that to my knowledge, my mom has never been on a forklift. I think we need to test the theory about the dancing dance off time right now, baby. Let's do it. <laughs> I really now though, Kevin, I do want to see an I lean on a pole match. I mean, I don't want to see her on a pole. Oh my God. Let's just move on. Um, educator. <laughs> why, yeah. I don't want to see your mom my on eyes. the pole. Uh, educator. Why don't you go ahead and break this match down for us? Oh gosh. My eyes, my eyes. It's those Coke bottle glasses. They get you every time. <laughs> Oh, baby. All right. So at the start of the match, we have Bagwell and Scorpio. Uh, the Nasty Boys end up snagging their t- title belt back uh, from them and start like celebrating like they're going to win the championship belts. Bagwell and Scorpio end up closing the Nasty Boys who are posing with their championship belts to start off the match. We see uh, Buff Bagwell uh, grabbing Missy Hyatt, who's still on the apron during the very start of the match, and ends up forcefully kissing Missy Hyatt and ends up getting a very huge crowd pop uh, from that. Missy Hyatt then rolls off onto the floor and she starts wiping her face. Couldn't believe that she was embarrassed by Bagwell. So actual in-match action now. We see the match start with Jerry Sags attacking Bagwell and getting him in the corner. Uh, lots of knees and forearms. Brian Nobbs ends up tagging in and continues with some stiff forearm shots to Bagwell. Eventually, Bagwell is able to counter back. And uh, as the Nasty Boys attempt to do a double team maneuver, Bagwell ends up doing a double drop kick onto both of the Nasty Boys to knock them down. And as the Nasty Boys get up to come after Bagwell, we see flying across from the top rope to Cold Scorpio with a decent-looking high cross body off the top rope from his corner onto both Nasty Boys, who now roll out onto the floor to kind of catch a breather and restart. Uh, Scorpio then ends up, as the Nasty Boys are on the floor, 
Uh, Bagwell and Scorpio actually clotheslined each of the Nasty Boys over the top rope onto the floor, and now they're on the floor trying to get their breather. Scorpio ends up setting up a maneuver where Bagwell kind of like kneels down in the ring and Scorpio hits the opposing rope and then jumps off of Bagwell's back to do a cross body over the top rope onto the floor onto both nasty boys, uh, really getting some high aerial action in the crowds, just popping super hard for uh, Scorpio's efforts back into the ring. We see a drop toe hold and then a splash Combo by the champions onto Brian Knobs. Scorpio with uh, then now does another drop toe hold and then starts working on an arm bar onto Brian Knobs. The tag team champions do a double shoulder block tackle onto Brian Knobs, and we end up getting a two count from referee Randy Anderson. Bagwell then hits a Thez press, a decent looking Thez press onto Brian Knobs. He attempts for another pinfall count, only gets two. Jerry Sags is able to tag in, and the tag champions end up doing a double hip toss and then a double elbow drop onto a prone Jerry Sags body. The Nasty Boys attempt to do a unique combo maneuver onto Bagwell. It looked like they were attempting to do like a stun gun, very similar to how Demolition Smash would pick up his opponent and do a stun gun, but Axe would grab the hand, grab the head and help drop the opponent down over his throat over the ropes. They attempt to do that to Bagwell, but they overshoot Bagwell and he ends up kind of falling over the top rope onto the floor. And then we see Missy Hyatt's involvement in the match. And my goodness, it sounded like a shotgun blast as Missy Hyatt must not have taken Buff Bagwell's cast very affectionately as she had one of the stiffest slaps across the face to a prone Bagwell as one of the nasty boys was holding his arms back and Bagwell just ate that right hand from Missy right across the left side of his face. It sounded like a shotgun blast. It was stiff and man, crazy, crazy. Uh, Back in the ring, Jerry Sags hits a belly-to-back suplex. Uh, actually, no, this is on the floor. Jerry Sags then, after that slap to the face, hits a belly-to-back suplex on the Bagwell onto the floor. Luckily, those uh, blue mats are going to help protect Bagwell's back as he's taking that back bump. Back into the ring, we see Jerry Sags doing a few short forearm shots to Bagwell's lower back. He does a body slam to Bagwell and then a leg drop across the, the chest. He ends up getting a two count onto uh, Buff Bagwell. Uh, Brian Knobs tags in and he drops three elbows and then does a sitting camel clutch like chin lock to continue to work on Bagwell's uh, upper body. Jerry Sags tags in and fires Bagwell chest first into the turnbuckle. Bagwell kind of sold it like Bret Hart being fired into the turnbuckle, sternum first and dropping right back into the center of the ring. Um, so it just interesting continued tag in and outs by the Nasty Boys to continue to work on Bagwell to get the upper hand on Bagwell. Uh, we see uh, he ends up, uh, Jerry Sags, dropping a leg drop between uh, Bagwell's legs so that his shin ends up heading on his chest and his sternum. Brian Knobs then tags back in. We get a bear hug onto Bagwell in the center of the ring. Bagwell is able to fight back, but then both Knobs and Sags are able to do a double-team maneuver onto Bagwell before he's able to make the tag to Scorpio. 
Bagwell eventually makes a comeback and does do a tag to Scorpio, but it was behind the referee's back. So the referee is forcibly trying to get Scorpio out of the ring. In this process, the Nasty Boys set up Bagwell for their double-team maneuver where Bagwell gets thrown into the corner and then sags Irish whips uh, Nasty Boy knobs into the corner to do his like avalanche stinger-like splash uh, that he was known for, but Bagwell finally is able to roll out of the way and ends up tagging in Scorpio. Scorpio comes in, he does drop kicks to both the Nasty Boys, does a roundhouse kick to Brian Nobbs. Uh, There's a huge melee going on, and in the background we see uh, Scorpio able to uh, set up Brian Nobbs with a body slam. He climbs to the top rope, does a moonsault, but Sags is able to break up the pinfall attempt by dropping an elbow. But uh, Scorpio moves out of the way, so Sags ends up dropping an elbow on his partner, Brian Nobbs. We then see in the foreground that Missy Hyatt and now Teddy Long are up on the apron and they're arguing and bickering back and forth as there's just a four-man melee in the ring. Uh, Marcus Bagwell then ends up clunking Jerry Sags' head to Missy's head, causing Missy to fall down back to onto the apron and on the floor. In the melee in the background, we see... Uh, Two Cold Scorpio set up Brian Nobbs. He hits the 450 splash onto Brian Nobbs, but then Sags had apparently removed his boot off of his foot and ends up picking up his boot and smacks uh, Scorpio in the back of the head, who was pinning Brian Nobbs. Very similar to the WrestleMania 7 match where uh, the uh, helmet was used to smack the opponent. And now Brian Nobbs rolls over on top of a prone Scorpio and gets the pinfall. One, two, three. And Buff Bagwell, unfortunately, was too slow to make the save to break up the pinfall. Winners and now, once again, World Tag Team Champions, the Nasty Boys. I think Bagwell is absolutely perfect in this role. Young guy, go and take the beating. He, you know, in a tag team, so it's not all about him. He's not at his biggest by any means. Um, but that young, pretty baby face one, the, the, you know, the nasty looking nasties, I can't think of a better word right now, are beating the hell out of a, it. Makes a lot of sense. Speaking of nasties who are still in our top match for the Halloween Havoc series, as much as they are quote nasty as they want to be they are also shockingly adaptable for what they have to be in the match against the steiners they had to wrestle a certain way they don't have to wrestle that way here against bagwell and scorpio it's a much lighter style they're bumping for you know this young uh face tag team so there's more, you know, like, oh, let me let me take the spot. Let me bump around. Let me act like this hurts a little more. But then they will go toe-to-toe with the Steiners and beat the hell out of each other. They don't have to do that here. I I can't believe the, the credit I, I'm giving to the Nasty Boys. I could have expected, you know, I'll see Steven Regal and gain more appreciation for him. Oh, geez, seeing a younger, healthier, less injured Steve Austin. Man, he was really good. Nasties would have never entered <laughs> my mind for someone that I'd be like, wow, I am really impressed with their work. What an underrated wrestler. Um, 
I question how WCW owned by Turner has no idea how to market stars at this time. Because how do you just not sell Missy Hyatt posters at every single Suncoast Entertainment and Tape World and any other store, EB Games, wherever at this time, anything that you might have a wrestling audience for? I cannot believe that they did not push her. And I want to ask her, I do, but she's blocked me on Twitter years ago. Um, and as far as that hit, that she, that's not surprising. Yeah, I, I, I made this home a joke. Um, you're talking about the hit for Bagwell. Now it's in storage, so I couldn't access it and reread it. But I actually have Missy Hyatt's autobiography. I bought it years ago, and I believe Bagwell was her neighbor, and she helped get him into wrestling. And it's implied that maybe they had a relationship at one point as well. So she probably can hit him because there's just a level of trust and familiarity there of, yeah, I'll let you get away with this. We've done worse. Go for it. But then that trust and familiarity lets you get away with a really great visual and sound and impact and everything for the spot. Yeah, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed uh, this match and the athleticism of both teams. So, um, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of fun. So, uh, but on that note, why don't we take a quick little commercial break? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. This October. The Retro Network presents the TRN Haunted Halloween. 31 days and nights of spooky-themed fun from pop culture's past and present. A full month of podcasts, videos, online features, and giveaways to make the hair on your neck stand up. TRN's Haunted Halloween will also haunt your social media channels with even more shocking goodies. Get the full experience by dropping into the TRN VIP lounge for more bone-chilling excitement than you can handle. Subscribe to the Retro Network podcast channel wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the TRN YouTube page. Follow TRN on your favorite social media channel at TRN Social. And visit theretronetwork.com daily for all the chills and thrills. There's no tricks, only treats as the Retro Network presents the TRN Haunted Halloween all month long in October. Coming soon to the Retro Network, in association with the House Show Podcast. Two men enter, but only one leaves, as the Mass Library Kevin Hellions and Marcus Alexander Bagwell throw down some cardboard and take it to the streets. Ladies and gentlemen, we proudly present to you the most epic dance-off ever. It's the TikTok dance off. One is buff with the stuff. The other one eats PB and J with fluff. All I know is neither one of these men can last 15 seconds, so it gets thrown down on TikTok.
Watch Kevin Hellion start off with the shopping cart. Buff Bagwell will follow up with a shuffle. Hellions then counters with the lawnmower. And then Buff Bagwell shows off his cabbage patch. Plus, many, many more moves that can be pulled off by middle-aged white guys at barbecues, family reunions, or when they order bottle service and try to pick up girls that are half their age at the club. The TikTok dance-off coming very soon to a podcast channel near you. All right, we are back with the cowboy Eric Bischoff interviewing Sid Vicious with Colonel Robert Parker. And that leads us into match number six on the card, which is the man they call Sting taking on Sid Vicious with Colonel Robert Parker for the na- nickname, the franchise. What is, what is going on here? I know, Kevin, you you were bringing this up in our, in our um, kind of uh, production meeting before we started here. Um have you always considered them both to be the franchise? No, I've never considered Sid to be a franchise of anything, not even softball. But I'll I'll say Sting's the franchise of WCW, though. Yeah, I'd absolutely say that. He was by far the most popular wrestler they had for many years. Yeah, and he's the only one that stayed. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, Sting definitely is the franchise of WCW. Treats, though. Curious. Why are you calling him Colonel Robert Parker and not just calling him a cowboy as well? Because his name's Colonel Robert Parker. Eric, his name's Eric Bischoff, and he's, and it was said he's dressed as General Custer. They never <laughs> called him cowboy. <laughs> Everyone knows Eric Bischoff is the little brother to Eric Watts. So they're cowboys. <laughs> what do you want from me? Here's what I've learned over the years, guys. Is that if you tell a lie, as long as you keep saying it over and over again, people will eventually believe you. Believe By the way, guys, true. go vote this Tuesday for your president. Okay. Oh, my God. It's Tuesday. Jeez. Yeah. It's crazy. Right? Election is is coming up. So anyways, why don't you uh, speaking of election, let's vote to see who is the franchise. Is it Sting? Is it Sid Vicious? Uh, educator one. What did you think of this match? Uh, something stood out to me at the start of this match and commentary tried to cover it or gloss over it when stink like first of all sting when he came to the ring his entrance gear he essentially was wearing a bedazzled jean jacket would you at least <laughs> both agree with that i thought it was yes. from missy hyatt's closet <laughs> he had a bedazzled so he, he looked- He's a, okay so if if eric bischoff is a cowboy oh god i see where it's going already go would ahead sting be a rhinestone cowboy yeah there it is there it is okay so Sting gets in the match or gets in the ring. He takes off his coat and you can visibly see on his back. He has got like open, like a significant bruise, a welt. Mm-hmm. To me, I, at a quick glance, I like I, it screams like a staph infection wound. He's yep. got going on in his back. You mean that wasn't from the vicious? That wasn't from the vicious chair shot during the match from the padded Not chair from the vicious chair shot or the the, the chair chat tap that he had in the match. <laughs> sure so that literally had six inches of padding. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, and so I just I I I'm what there's I'm sure there has to be a story an injury 
if there was a puncture on his back, if he had a, an infection or something, it's just, I, I don't know. It's, it was super obvious and how commentary attempted to gloss over it as, as all oh, that came from the chair shot, blah, blah, blah. No, you saw it right at the start of the match. Maybe his jacket was bedazzled with a hot glue gun and it hadn't cooled down when he put on the jacket and he burned himself. That could very well be it, I guess. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like I said, that jacket looked like something Missy Hyatt would have been wearing. Um, just a quick aside, Kevin. Yes. I, I know why you're getting stuck on this cowboy stuff. Oh, boy. Because you're the inventor of the Super Rodeo Burger. <laughs> oh, the Super Rodeo Burger. Oh, baby. I have to go out today and get one. Have you had a rodeo burger recently? How recently do we mean recently? Within last year, yes. Within last month, no. Have I made a super one within last year? Yes. The super rodeo burger is just when you order a, you order a Whopper. You order a Whopper. You order a side of onion rings, and you get barbecue sauce, and you put the onion rings and the barbecue sauce on top of the Whopper to make a super rodeo burger, and then you get sick and lay on the couch and have your wife say, "Freaking told you every time." Every time. And ladies and gentlemen, that, my friends, is Fast Food Hacks with Kevin Owens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why don't we just... Yeah, so you go in like your hardcore hack, because you're hacking your menu. And then you end up like the Sandman, because you're sleeping in the middle of the ring by the end of the day. All right, so anyways, why don't we get right into it? Educator, why don't you break this one down for us? Okay, so at the start of the match, we see Colonel Robert Parker attempt to do a distraction on the Sting. As he it allows Sid to attack Sting from behind. Sid Irish whips Sting into the ropes, but Sting ducks and hits a clothesline. He hits a body slam onto Sid and then follows up with two more clotheslines. Sting suplexes Sid, who had rolled out on uh, to the apron on the floor. He ends up suplexing Sid back into the ring. Uh, and then Sid goes back out onto the floor itself to catch a breather. But instead, Sting ends up following Sid. And Sid gets thrown over the guardrail into the crowd and Sting and basically follows Sid, uh, Sid throughout the crowd is uh, punching, kicking, forearm shots to the body uh, all around in the crowd. Eventually, uh, Sting leads Sid back to ringside, throws him over the guardrail back again to ringside and then get back into the ring. We see Sting uh, climb to the top rope and do a diving clothesline off the top rope. Goes for a pinfall attempt and gets a long one count from referee Nick Patrick. Sid catches Sting by the throat and ends up doing a choke slam. And then ends up, uh, because Colonel Robert Parker had grabbed Sting's leg for a distraction, allowing uh, Sid to grab the throat and do a choke slam to Sid or to Sting. Uh, We see a bunch of one-handed tosses of Sting getting thrown into the corner turnbuckle three times by Sid as he's beeling him by the throat. We see in the background, Sid is distracting the ref. That gives Colonel Robert Parker the opportunity to choke Sting with his handkerchief around uh, around his throat himself uh, to do some little dastardly deeds to get his uh, spot or two in. We see lots of leg stomps. By uh, our foot stomps by Sid as he's like jumping off of the bottom rope and then stomping down on the Sting's body. Sid sets up with a side suplex next to the ropes. 
so that he can roll away and distract the referee again. And Sting's prone body is now allowed to be choked again by Colonel Robert Parker. At one point, Sting gets fed up with Parker, ends up rolling off on the floor and starts chasing Parker around uh, the ringside area towards the, the ramp, the entryway ramp. And Sting ends up getting hit from behind by Sid. And Robert Parker scurries out of the way. And then Sid picks up a padded cushioned chair and very gently lays the chair over Sting's back for a supposed <laughs> chair shot, which just looked just terrible to the viewer on TV. And then back in the ring later, we end up hearing Jesse Ventura cover that there's this supposed welt on Sting's back because of that chair shot. And there's no way that that chair shot caused it. You could absolutely see that welt that supposedly was there from the start of the match. We end up seeing uh, Sid uh, picking up Sting, like almost like a press slam, but he ends up dropping Sting throat first over the guardrail. Back into the ring, Sid is working a reverse chin lock, but Sting is able to battle back. He hits the ropes only for Sid to catch him for a power slam and ends up getting a two count from referee Nick Patrick. Sid is now working a bear hug onto Sting's lower back, but Sting is able to eventually fight it off and break away. Sting ends up getting... uh, Sid into the corner, he hits a stinger splash into the corner. Irish whips Sid to the opposite corner, hits a second stinger splash. And then we get this weird spot. And this is becoming a theme now where it seems like every finish to the match, there seems to be some weird outside interference or chicanery here. Uh, So Colonel Robert Parker is now grabbing both men by their feet uh, outside of the ring, similar to Bobby Heenan grabbing the <laughs> Ultimate Warrior's legs at WrestleMania Five. Both men are wearing black boots, but you'd think it would be obvious with Sting with his longer gear as opposed to Sid's bare leg and knee pad being exposed. So Colonel Robert Parker is grabbing both guys, trying to trip a leg, And commentary is trying to play it off of, well, he's got poor eyesight. He can't really see. And at one point, he ends up grabbing Sid by the leg and causing Sid to trip and fall down. And he's holding on to Sid's leg, similar to Bobby Heenan holding the Warriors leg down at WrestleMania 5 for Rude to get the pinfall. But Sid is able to, you know, get Sting out uh, off of him by the referee's two count. Sid sits up. While Parker still has him by the leg that he's leaning down for the leverage and starts tapping Parker on the shoulder like, what in the world are you doing? And then Sid ends up grabbing Parker by his collar, yanking him up onto the uh, the, the canvas uh, on ringside. And Sting follows up and does a roll up and kind of knocks Sid into Colonel Robert Parker and rolls him up and gets the one, two, three pinfall. Your winner, Sting. Maybe in Colonel Parker's defense, maybe he just thinks all black boots look alike. Um, This is the Sid we know and loathe from the In Your House series. Unfocused, sloppy, all over the place. Why is Sid taking a beating from Sting at the very start of the match? Why is he overselling and flopping all around at near seven feet tall? 
why is he stopping when he has the advantage to just like pose and and get the crowd booing him all this with a manager who is more experienced in wrestling and then theory could focus him to be like get in the match he is terrible in this match it's good to see that sit again it's absolutely horrible here um didn't he have i i feel like i remember complaining in the in your house series that i think sid was on the outside during maybe a six-man tag and he was like throwing uh a forearm at the opponent when the opponent was in their corner and it was just sad and lackadaisical and had no energy behind it much like this chair shot I, if this is going to be your quote, who's the franchise match? Geez, pull it out and have someone that may have been able to hang on to that title or made an argument for that title, even in a loss. Like this seems like it should be Sting's warm up to a challenge against someone else who might be a franchise. I want to build anything around Sid right now. This should be the franchise tag should be Sting versus Luger, but Luger's yes. gone. But Luger's gone. Yeah, I would give you that though. It's Sting versus Flair, of course, would make a lot of sense. You know what? With, with the way he's coming up in this, because there was a sign in the crowd earlier in the night, Steve Austin is the wrestler of the 90s. You could add Sting versus Steve Austin, who will be the franchise of the 90s for WCW. And by the way, uh, talk about a hot take that was correct. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whoever made that sign, geez, get the lotto numbers from that guy because... Time <laughs> traveler. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, he, he nailed that take. <laughs> and then the thing, I'll, I'll bring it up here because I don't know where else it would go. WCW always seems to have bought their chairs from a different company than WWF does because WWF always seemed to have like real steel chairs where WCW has these ones that Sid uses with the padding or then the wooden slat ones right that we would see all the time too and neither look as good as and and you know pre us having all the concussion knowledge neither of the WCW options look as good as a WWF steel chair no 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 they don't yeah it's just once again another terrible match ending. of the night yeah, that was Colonel Robert Parker. Just the, the the foot grab is the most ridiculous thing too. Like, how can you not? T- I mean, Sting's got neon on and right. and and, sit, and you're looking at their feet. It's not like it was one of the things where he's jawing with someone in the crowd and goes to grab it when someone's getting you know Irish whipped into the into the ropes. He's literally right. both. It's uh... he grabs both guys' legs and then commits <laughs> to Sid's. It's just crazy. It makes zero, zero sense. But uh, why don't we move on? Uh, we get Cactus Jack and Vader both getting ready for the match. Uh, Vader is shadow boxing uh, with Harley Race, and Cactus Jack is saying his prayers on the floor <laughs> or something is what they, they said. back and forth and telling himself, you can't hurt Cactus Jack. You can't hurt Cactus Just Jack. Just great stuff. I, uh, you know. that was, yeah, that was wonderful. That was awesome. Mick Foley's always been a treasure to see in anything we've seen him on. Mick Foley's fantastic. Um, and that moves on to match number seven on the night. It is the nature boy, Ric Flair with Fifi, uh, taking on ravishing Rick rude. Uh, of course, Taylor, Terry Taylor is the outside referee. And this match is for the big gold. And I'm going to guess guys that this match has a nice clean finish for us. 
It's such, it's so clean. I think the maid cleaned it up for us. Fifi the maid on TV going to eventually become Ric Flair's real life wife. Which number number wife is she? Five or six, I think. Current though, I believe. Current. I think I think it's she's the sixteenth. <laughs> so, what would you guys think of this? Uh, this is, of course, for the uh, big gold. The big gold, the world heavyweight championship that apparently now the WCW International Committee recognizes as a world championship belt. Um, I thought the match itself, pre the finish, was a great match between Flair and uh, Rick Rude. Uh, I, unfortunately the shenanigans of the double referee and the bumps that the both end up taking and then the foreign object, uh, and how it just played out on television. It, it just, it didn't, uh, it's too bad. It just, the, the screwy ending kind of killed it all for me. If this was the only screwy ending, it'd be okay though, you know? But we're just in this ru- this marathon of screwy endings here. And it's like, are you got to be kidding me? Another one? It's so disappointing. I was enjoying the hell out of this match until then. Yeah, and it's just been one after another after another. I mean, the only uh, the only clean finish we've had has been the six-man the, tag. The six-man opener. Oh, God. We're putting over the Shockmaster and Chuck Norris. All right. Uh, 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 yeah, and then you got the the time limit draw, which I mean, there was no screwy ending there. It's just the time limit, and it played out the way it was supposed to. But yeah, everything else, goofy ending. Just so so weird. So, uh, anyways, educator, why don't you break down this one for us? This was a great match between the guys, um, and lots of notes here with the back and forth between Flair and Rick Rude. We see towards the start of the match, Rick Flair with a kick to Rude's knee, a chop, and then essentially a back body drop to Rick Rude. We see Rick Flair hitting more chops in the corner and then to Rude and then hits a standing vertical suplex to Rude, a pinfall attempt only for a one count. We see an Irish whip into the corner and then Flair follows in with a clothesline to Rick Rude. Flair tries it again, but as he's running into the corner, uh, Rude ends up picking up his knees and Flair ends up smacking into Rude's knees in the corner. Eventually, Ric Flair uh, regains back and counters back and hits a shin breaker to Rick Rude and then is able to slap on the figure four leg lock right in the center of the ring. After about a minute or so, Rude is able to scooch his body back and forth and he reaches up for the ropes and it's the referee to break the hold. So now Ric Flair has gotten rude, weakened in the leg due to the efforts and the effects of the figure four leg lock. We see Ric Flair wrapping Rude's leg around the ring post twice and then ends up hitting a chop block to knock Ric Flair or to knock Rick Rude down uh, to continue to work on the knee and the ankle of ravishing Rick Rude. We have a, a single leg grapevine. And we're working, continuing working on the knee and the ankle of Rick Rude. At one point, Rude is able to grab Ric Flair by the waistband of his tights and throws and yanks Ric Flair through the middle and top rope onto the floor. Uh, Flair gets back up and from the ring apron ends up hitting a sunset flip over the top rope onto Rick Rude. Rick Rude ends up dropping down to his knees and ends up grabbing the second rope for leverage. 
And then Terry Taylor, who was the outside referee, ends up slapping on Rude's hands to get him to break away from holding onto the ropes to break up the pinfall. And then uh, Flair is able to finally get Rude to tumble over and only gets a two count. And then we see a very, what could have been a career-threatening bump, at least to my to how I saw it, Rick Rude could have been very easily injured with the next bump. We see Rick Rude, whose back is to the ropes. He's standing in the center of the ring. Rick Flair charges from the other side and ends up doing a cross body to Rude, causing Flair to tumble over the top rope and Rick Rude to, you know, follow over the top. Flair's body ends up landing on the apron, but when Rude tumbles over onto the floor, Rick Rude hits a folded up chair that is ringside and he could have very easily this the spill onto the floor and the angle that he hit the chair. He really could have done some serious damage. And, uh, you know, a little more than a year or a little less than a year from now, uh, Rude ends up doing a very similar outside flop to the floor and he ends up hurting his back in Japan and which causes him to retire. So ugly, ugly looking bump over the top onto the floor. Uh On the floor, we see Flair hitting chops to get Rude down. Flair climbs back into the ring. He climbs to the top rope, channeling his inner macho man, Randy Savage. He jumps off of the top rope to the floor and drops a forearm onto Rude, Rude's uh, head and neck area. Flair goes back into the ring again, attempting to do the same maneuver, but this time it's a crash and burn as Ric Flair uh, gets punched in the in the abdomen from Rick Rude as he's coming down with the second top rope jump towards Rick Rude to the floor. Rude tries to hit a flare with a chair shot and outside of the ring, but outside referee Terry Taylor grabs the chair from Rick Rude. And we hear Jesse Ventura frustrated on commentary as to how Terry Taylor's, you know, not being fair in that, you know, flares they being able to take advantage and Terry Taylor's only, you know, admonishing rude for his efforts we see a rick rude uh guillotine like clothesline on the flare as he drops flare over the top rope we see a backbreaker done by rick rude over his knee to rick flare's body and ends up getting a two count from the referee rick rude then does a camel clutch like style reverse chin lock sitting on flare's back and ranking back on the chin and the neck We see Rude jumping off the top rope, and he hits a forearm to Flair's head, and it connects. Um, But as Rude hits the ground, jumping off the top rope, Rude ends up selling his injured knee from earlier in the match. Rude does follow up with another mat-based ground chin lock while sitting on Flair's back to continue to work his body down. Rick Rude then Irish whips Flair into the corner, and who ends up Flair does his flop and flail over the top, you know, into the turnbuckle onto the uh, onto the canvas in the corner, but ends up hitting one of the cameramen who was on that corner apron. Rick Rude suplexes Flair back into the ring as Flair was standing on the apron. Rick Rude climbs to the top rope and hits a second forearm shot to Rick Flair off the top rope for a two count. We see Rick Rude Irish whipped into the turnbuckle. Uh, but and then he ends up hitting or throwing Flair into the turnbuckle. He follows up and hits Flair with a clothesline. Is still only able to get a two count from referee Randy Anderson. 
Uh, Rick Rude now works a bear hug to work on Rude's lower back, and there's many pinfall attempts as they're now laying down on the canvas with Rude still with the bear hug locked in, and he's trying to roll Flair's shoulders down, and on the two count, Flair keeps rolling his left shoulder up to escape a pinfall attempt. Rick Rude ends up Irish whipping Rick Flair into the turnbuckle, and he uh, hits another clothesline. Flair then attempts to rebound back and attempts to do a sleeper hold, uh, climbing onto the back of Rick Rude, but Rude ends up ramming his entire body back first into the corner to get Flair to break the hold. Uh, Flair is able to rebound in mid-match. He ends up doing a twisting Rude awakening neckbreaker to ravishing Rick Rude to a huge crowd pop to the astonishment of commentary. And Flair goes for the pinfall onto Rude only to get a two count from the referee, Randy Anderson. Flair attempts a backslide attempt uh, to Rude to get a two count. Flair hits a suplex onto Rude, climbs the top rope. Uh, but Rude is able to get his feet up as Flair comes crashing down, both feet into Flair's face. Both guys end up doing an Irish whip reversal, which ends up causing a referee bump as Anderson gets knocked onto the fl- referee. Randy Anderson gets knocked on the floor. Terry Taylor's checking on Randy Anderson, but then climbs into the ring during a pinfall attempt. Uh, and then Flair ends up Irish whipping Rude and pushing Rude into Terry Taylor, who then gets knocked down onto the canvas as well. Then we see Rick Rude go into his tights or gabs a foreign object from somewhere, and he tries to swing and hit Rick Flair with the foreign object. But Flair ducks and ends up catching Rick Rude for a belly-to-back suplex. The foreign object then falls out of Rude's hands. And then Ric Flair ends up picking up that foreign object and decks Rude into the face with it, knocking out Rick Rude. Terry Taylor goes for the pinfall account, uh, pinfall attempt one, two, three, or almost a three as referee Randy Anderson stops Terry Taylor making the three count. And Randy Anderson calls for the disqualification finish because apparently he saw Ric Flair pick up the foreign object and deck Rick Rude with it. So your winner by disqualification, Ravishing Rick Rude, who retains his World Heavyweight Championship. Really good match until the end, which seems to be the habit for tonight. For the opening, I completely forgot about Fifi. And uh, I also forgot that they are now married uh, I was looking up, I'm like, oh, I wonder whatever happened to her. If, you know, another wrestling group tried to sign her or she had a different gimmick or anything like that. Uh, very underrated part of Flair's career, I would say, overall. Um, Rude and Flair, I didn't realize to watching this match how very similar they are. And just the, you know, great technical wrestlers. Late, You know, you got the ladies man thing for it. Um, both work so much better as heels will make the opponent look good. But then when they're in control of the match, just dissecting, breaking apart their opponent's body, wearing them down and everything. And to have two very similar overall styles collide like that, it was just fun. It was like a, a Zen thing going on in the ring where they just knew what each other would be going for because they would be going for it themselves if they were, you know, in that position in the ring and during the match. Uh, funniest, absolute funniest, because we're talking about chemistry with people and getting along and all. 
Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura realizing when they're in the background of a camera shot and waving at the camera every time. I've never understood why WCW puts that announce table right up against the ring. To me, it seems a potential danger for the wrestlers, for the announcers. The WWF wave being more against the crowd than against the ring makes sense to me. I, I see the value of having it over by the entrance ramp, too. I, I prefer at ringside, but I see a reason for it. But the WCW one right up against there, it just seems like someone's going to get hurt at some point here unnecessarily so not as a spot not as a planned thing i i just don't understand it why terry taylor for this really overall like i don't understand because he had a very good match last year there it just seems there, there's so many things tonight that seems like someone you must have had a better option to be put into this much like it said the franchise i think some card shuffling could have happened to have a better match a better idea there I feel like there's got to be someone else that would make more sense than Terry Taylor for this spot here. I don't get it. And you know, much like we're getting frustrated with the screwy endings, when the fans chant edit point treats so loud that it's coming across crystal clear as if they're on the mics themselves, you know you've screwed up for the night. (laughs) You've lost them. A very hot crowd at the start is now completely crapping on what you've served them tonight. You're talking about the screw-up. Do you think that the person that picked up the foreign object and brought it to the corner, like the cameraman or the photographer, screwed up? I mean, what was the point of that? I think he was trying to... I think in his mind, he was clearing ring debris, much like if Jeff Jarrett uses a uh, guitar shot and there's little pieces of guitar all over and you got like people trying to sweep it out of the ring so no one gets hurt. I think he wasn't aware of the spot and thought he was doing a favor by cleaning up the ring. Part of me also wonders, though, if doing if doing it like that, maybe that was planned and that that allowed the referee, Randy Anderson, to see Ric Flair go over, pick up that foreign object as he is the one that supposedly is introducing it in the match to hit Rick Rude with it in the head. And that's maybe. It might be a stretch, but that's what led to the disqualification, being able to see the obviousness of him having to walk over to the corner and pick it up kind of deal. Yeah, and it's just really weird to see, and I know it's been done over and over again, but to see Ric Flair as a face this match is just kind of, he's just such a natural heel, and you just automatically think about the cocky heel, and that's what you go with. But to see him be the face in this match um, against... You know, Rick Rude. It's just it's just weird to me. Yeah. Um, but why don't we move on to our main event of the evening? Of course, the main event of the evening is Vader taking on Cactus Jack. Um, you know, it's funny. You would think this was going to be for the world title, but it's not. Because, you know, I think that's where Tony Schiavone got confused. Because for the longest time, I thought this was going to be for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Um, but they said, of course, that is not the motivation for Cactus Jack and this match. And this is the Texas death match. So, uh, before we get into it, let me go over the rules of the Texas death match, because this is just weird to me. And I don't understand why is what's going on here. The rules that were not consistently followed, including in the screwy ending. Absolutely. (laughs) So, uh, so it's, it's, so it's a no DQ match. Number one. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Number two, falls don't count 
which I saw that. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, what's the point of that? Number three, there is a 30 second rest period in between falls, but I thought falls didn't count. So why is there 30 seconds in between? Number four, falls can be anywhere in the building, but they literally just said falls don't count, but now falls count anywhere. And then there is a 10 count, um, which decides the winner. So really it's a last man standing match. Um, but why is there a 30 second rest period? And then 10 seconds, it makes no sense. And it's just adding time. Um, and it doesn't add suspense at all. And you know, the, the, the 10 seconds is supposed to happen after, like the educator says, it's supposed to happen after a fall, but apparently it's all oh, this ending. Oh, brutal. It's at 30 seconds of gray area. Well, if the guy is up within that 30 seconds, okay, the match restarts, doesn't it? You would but think. Apparently, yeah. You would think, but apparently not. And then all of a sudden when a fall has happened, then we start counting both men down if they're down as a result of you know what happens in that 30 seconds. I don't know. It's just I, I love the match, the the hard hittingness, the back and forth, the brutality. It was great. Again, the finish, the ending was terrible. And it just it does not follow the logic of the supposed rules that they established at the beginning of the match. And also, this is the thing that gets me and it, it doesn't get you guys. But I mean, that's part of the fun of our show. We're not, you know, all three of us agreeing on everything. I don't understand if the champion is going to retain the title at the end. Why not just make it for the title? It would add some more drama to it. I do like how they explained the non-title. See, I thought, like you said, I thought it was going to be a title match. I was like Shivani thinking there was going to be five title matches on the card, but really there's only four. But I do like the way that they explained it was that Cactus Jess doesn't care about the title. He just wants revenge. And I've hmm. been saying that is what the Fiend character should be. Why does the Fiend care about the Universal Championship? It doesn't fit the character. He should right. literally only care about hurting the person. I've been saying that since they booked Fiend versus Seth Rollins in the Hell in the Cell. And they had, um, one, it should not have been for the title. And that's how you could have booked yourself out of that. If the Fiend is this unstoppable character, then all he wants to do is inflict damage onto Seth Rollins. Then you could have stopped the match that way, but instead they reversed it and had Seth Rollins attacking the Fiend, which they had stopped in Anoka. But that's that's for a run-in. It's not for here. I, I do like the fact that they said Cactus Jack um, doesn't care about the title, and he just wants to hurt Vader, and that makes sense to me. And that's that's classic booking. Why are two people fighting? It should be for revenge. It should be for money slash title, or it should be for a woman. No. So Cactus doing it for revenge, not worried about the title. You are right. That does make a lot of sense and works with Cactus's character, too. I just wish that the booking and the rules that were established were just followed and they would have just come to a clean finish that within the rules that they confine themselves in for the, the this version of the Texas death match. And unfortunately, I mean, I have no problem with the, the Harley race involvement in the finish. It's just, it doesn't make sense that the finish is cactus is up doing offensive maneuvers after he's been pinned. He's on his feet. That should be breaking the fall. Why is the referee counting a 10 after uh, an offensive maneuver that cactus Jack does to knock Vader down after Cactus was pinned, and but Cactus is up. The match has been resuming. 
why are we counting? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree with you, too. The, the one thing I don't like about the finish, obviously, they break up the stun gun, stun cactus jack, is when they're showing the stun gun, it's great because he's pressing the button. You hear the noise and everything. Right. And then when he goes to stun him, there's no noise. Like there's he no literally just, <laughs> Yeah. He clicks it a couple of seconds before, and then when he actually touches him with the calf, there's no clicking whatsoever, which, you know, he could have hid the uh, stun gun behind his calf as the referee or as the camera was looking over his shoulder as he's zapping him, so to speak, to do the clicking noise to not, you know, there could have been ways around that to do the clicking, but it or is just have it's. two of them, one in the left hand, one in the right hand, use the right hand, turn that one on so there's noise and then hold the other one. I mean, it's that yeah. simple. Oh, there you go. Easy. easy. <laughs> mean, yeah. It's just, it's, it's so annoying, especially too, because these guys are working hard. They are brutal with each other. I think Vader, um, you can tell they probably like working with each other, especially Vader likes working with Cactus Jack, uh, with Mick Foley, because he's laying it in. I mean, Absolutely. a lot of his shots are laying it in. You know, we talked about the crappy chair shot from the Sid match. There's some great chair shots in this one. Vicious, vicious chair shots. Um, there's great visuals when they fall down, they go down and then Vader's rising up from the grave bloodied. That's a great visual, Yeah, but it's just this end is just it just doesn't make sense the rules aren't good and it doesn't do these two performers justice in this match so for this particular uh you know wrap up of the show here i'm just going to go towards the near end uh with the back and forth between them to the finish itself we, we there's lots of uh pinfalls that have happened vader's being pinned by cactus cactus has been pinned by vader and, you know, there's the 30-second countdown and then the referee's 10 count. And both men are able to essentially, uh, you know, get up and continue the match itself. So um, first thing we'll get to is near the floor uh, towards the end of the match. We see Cactus Jack do a front suplex uh, where he drops Vader kind of belly first over the guardrail. And that kind of stuns Vader. And then brawling in the crowd, Vader ends up back body dropping Cactus Jack over the top of the over the railing back towards ringside. We see Vader with a vicious chair shot to Cactus Jack. And on camera, we see Harley Race starting to play around with a taser in his pocket. And he's turning it on. He's clicking it to make sure it works. And then he looks over his shoulder and he notices that there's a cameraman kind of peering in as to what he's doing. And he ends up like shooing the cameraman away, telling the cameraman to get out of there. We see back into the ring, Vader hits a body slam on the Cactus Jack. He climbs up to the top rope and he hits a moonsault. It's a glancing moonsault that connects uh, to Cactus Jack and he ends up getting a three count. Cactus Jack is able to get up from the three count or get up after the 30 second break and then the 10 count and the match itself resumes. So now Vader has thrown Cactus out through the ropes onto the on the rampway and then Cactus is able to rebound and recover and Cactus Jack climbs onto Vader's back. So he's basically kind of like a sleeper hold kind of deal and Vader, who's staggering with Cactus Jack's weight on his back, uh, doing the sleeper-like chin lock, he, Vader flops back onto his back, 
putting all 430, 40, 50 plus pounds of body weight on the Cactus Jack. We hear this sickening thud on that rampway during that particular spot. That would have been a great place to do a pinfall attempt in a 30, 30 second and then a 10 count, so on. But Vader is able to roll off to the side. He picks up a chair and hits a very sickening chair shot to Cactus Jack's head. We hear Harley Race in the background screaming at Vader, DDT him on the chair, DDT him on the chair. So Vader does set up the chair onto the rampway and does uh, DDT Cactus Jack onto the chair. Then here's where the goofiness of the finish comes in. Vader doesn't immediately go for the pinfall. Instead, we've got trainers, paramedics, backstage agents. They decide to come out onto the rampway where Cactus Jack is laying prone, and they start checking on Cactus, providing medical attention. Uh, this would It would have made sense if this was going on during uh, the 30-second rest period, but it doesn't. So I don't know if it was a missed time, a miss, a miss cue that somebody had. So Vader ends up getting involved and pushing all of the trainers, the paramedics, this, all of the backstage agents away. And then he decides to lay down on Gactus and pins him. One, two, three. Okay. So now we have the 30-second time period. Cactus Jack gets onto his feet and begins brawling with Vader on the on the rampway during the 30 second rest period he then hits vader with a ddt on the same chair during this 30 second countdown both men are now laying down on the ground and the 30 second rest period is over and now referee nick patrick is counting both men down why is he counting Vader down? Vader had the original pinfall victory or pinfall over Cactus Jack. He's counting both of the guys down. But he's counting both guys. But Cactus Jack had already gotten up to his feet and continued the match with Vader and ended up DDTing Vader onto a chair. So both men are being counted down. The referee is looking back and forth at both men as he's doing the 10 count. As Cactus Jack is getting up to his feet, we see Harley Race playing around with his taser. Harley Race is standing on the floor next to the rampway and ends up clicking the uh, the taser a few times. And then after the clicking is done, he proceeds to put it into Cactus Jack's like right, um, his right hamstring his calf, I guess his calf muscle, so to speak, yeah, his hamstring, and um, ends up, you know, tasing Cactus that causes Cactus to fall back down. Referee Nick Patrick looks at Cactus being down. Vader is now on his feet and calls the match as being over the winner by the rules established by the Texas Death Match. Vader, who answered a 10 count and got up to his feet after he was the one that pinned Cactus during the last pinfall attempt, even though Cactus had already gotten up and proceeded to knock Vader down uh, with the DDT. So, uh, such a terrible, terrible ending to this pay-per-view, to this match, and a slew of just screwy, screw job endings. Um, 
it was a fun show to watch, but it was not a great pay-per-view at all. It's my take. If there was a class being taught in how to lose your audience, you couldn't do better than this pay-per-view. To take the hot crowd and just give them bad ending after bad ending after bad ending. Would you want to order the next pay-per-view after this? I, I honestly, I can't imagine how Battle Bowl did. I, it would be interesting to go back and research and find out. I mean, it was a, it's, it was its own standalone November pay-per-view, kind of competing with WWF Survivor Series in 93. So, but yeah, I just, this was not, unfortunately, the ending after ending just completely killed the desire to want to watch more of this stuff. And I, I forget um, what Cactus's boots look like and what Vader's boots look like, but I'm glad that Harley Race, unlike Colonel Robert Parker, could tell the difference when he was shocking him his legs with a cattle prod. Would have been a shame if he got Vader's legs and got them all confused, or got both legs. When Cactus has pinned Vader multiple times in this match, and yes, the falls don't count, except for when they do. They're kind of like the points on whose line is it anyway. He's now pinned the world, world title multiple times. Why is he not seen as a main event player in the world title picture here? Like, okay, in this match, you do not pin the champ to win the title, but you have pinned the champion. This is like pinning the champion in a tag team match, and then you get your title shot because you've proven right. you can pin the champ. Exactly. Very like, good point. There's so much I don't... And and yes, we know there's booking things. There's politics. There's who's in charge. There's who's friends with who. There's all that stuff, of course. But from a fan perspective... Nothing makes sense tonight. It's just so frustrating. It's like it's almost Russo era. Maybe Russo's the time traveler that came back to put up that Steve Austin sign, but he just decided to bury this pay-per-view while he was there too. So some quick research for you. Halloween Havoc did about a hundred thousand buys, it looks like Battle Bowl did about sixty thousand. Oh yeah. wow, that's a it's drop. Not surprising. Um, Starcade obviously goes up to one twenty, but yeah, so just kind of, it did leave a bad taste, I think, in all of our mouths, which is unfortunate because, you know, Vader and Mick Foley were working hard. All right, guys, I think that's going to do it for Halloween Havoc 1993. Educator, you thought there was a match that might be able to sneak into the top five or best match of the night? I mean, what were your thoughts? I I don't, I don't think now going after going through the shows, going through the recaps, um, I know that I was a fan of the Orndorff Steamboat match itself, um, even with the the goofy ending. At least that ending I appreciated with the assassin being involved kind of deal. Um, I'm, I like the action with the Ric Flair, Rick Rude match more. But after having gone through the show, uh, there is not one particular match on this. I mean, right now, what is our current number five? Currently, number five is the Thunderdome match. I don't see one that I could justify putting over the Thunderdome. No, and what's frustrating is there's so many that with better endings could have been a conversation. Absolutely. Uh, can I can I make a suggestion? Sure. Why don't we rank where the Tony Schiavone intro goes? <laughs> oh, that's first. Because that has been my favorite thing that we've seen on the Halloween Havocs. Um, that goes up there with the Nasty Boys versus the Steiner Brothers, <laughs> in my opinion. All right, so there will be no change to our top five matches. Of course, number one is the Nasty Boys versus the Steiners. Uh, number two is 
uh, flying Brian Pullman versus Lex Luger. Number three is Bobby Eaton versus Terrence Taylor. Number four is, once again, Lex Luger taking on Simmons in the two out of three falls match. And then number five is the Thunderdome. So, guys, we have to rank where Halloween Havoc 1993 is will go. We'll start at the bottom, work our way to the top. Is Halloween Havoc 93 better than Halloween Havoc 92? Absolutely not. Really? No. See, I really hated 92, so I was going to put it one above, but it was going to stop there. I, I can't justify putting it over. And I agree with Kevin on this. Okay. Um, to me, this one was better than the last one we watched. Uh, one, because of the Tony Schiavone intro got me so excited for it. Um, <laughs> I did like this spin a wheel make a deal better than last year's too. the main event I thought was better. Also, Rick Rude versus Ric Flair, a lot better than Rick Rude versus Masahiro Chono. Okay. Yeah. So the top of the card, I thought, even though the the endings all suck, um, I I I did enjoy um, the action better personally. Yeah, it, I can I can see that. Yeah, it's a bottom A, bottom B. Right. Yeah, they're both not that great. Right. No. As far as wrestling action goes, but um, plus you know Eric Bischoff dressed up like a cow. Yeah, that's treats. Mr. Cowboys make everything better. There you go. So, yeah, that's going to do it for us, guys. Uh, next, uh, so a couple things coming up on, uh, you know, on Halloween itself. On Saturday, we have our special run-in episode of NXT Halloween Havoc. I wonder what Shotzi Blackheart has up her sleeve for the show. I know Kevin has been waiting with anticipation. I'm hoping no sleeves. Kevin's an arm guy. Um, and then on next Thursday, we are, yes, we're going to be in November. Um, we will be covering Halloween Havoc 1994. And the main event for that is Ric Flair taking on Honk Hogan in a steel cage retirement match for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship with Mr. T as a special guest referee. And I'm just going to go and say it out loud, guys. 1994 retirement match. I'm sure neither one of them will be back after that match. No doubt. One of them is going to have to, you know, hang up the boots for good, seek out new ventures and a new career. Uh, it's going to be a definitive finish for one of their careers. I just can't believe we're seeing the end of an era there so soon. That's this uh, historical night we'll be talking about next week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, educator of exorcisms, what do you want to say to everyone out there? Uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody that tunes into our show. We hope you are very much appreciating our new season with the Halloween Havoc episodes. Uh, certainly invite you to give us some commentary some feedback we would love to hear from you what do you like what do you what do you think we could improve on definitely want to get the vibe from our audience as to what we what you would like the direction of our show to continue towards uh want to say thank you to my two guests or our two uh co-hosts here I always appreciate the time uh to go over this wrestling nostalgia from yesteryear uh, appreciate your perspective on things. You know, you, I get to see things how I look at them. And then when looking at your perspective, it really makes me uh, understand that, you know, it, it isn't a one size fits all kind of deal. And, you know, and some things, you know, may portray themselves a lot better than what my perspective of what they really are. So I do appreciate your feedback and your commentary. Um, Please, guys, take a look at uh, fun.com. We're probably running a little bit too late now for HalloweenCostumes.com to get something in uh, for this upcoming Saturday. 
but definitely take advantage of our sales, uh, the sales that are available through our sponsorship and our show notes. And also the NXT Halloween Havoc special. Um, yeah, and I just want to uh, first thank the educator uh, for allowing the two guests, myself and Kevin Hellions, on the show today. We appreciate that. Um, Always a good time to be on the educator show. Um, yeah, of course, want to thank the sponsors, HalloweenCostumes.com and Fun.com. That HalloweenCostumes.com link is still good up until the 31st. Um, and they have more than just costumes on there. They do have, you know, decorations, different things like that. So uh, so go on there, see what they have. Um, you know, not only do they have Halloween costumes, but, you know, your kids are probably at home because they have to learn from school. There's a lot of things you can do for dress up and, and different things like that. And, of course, fun uh, fun.com, that co- coupon code will be good through the end of the year, which is very exciting. Um, as, as the educator eloquently put, please come back on Saturday for our NXT Halloween Havoc special episode on Twitter. You can find me at Maddie Treats. And then finally, Mr. Cowboy, Kevin Hellions. Why don't you take us home? The masked cowboy, who I think wrestles on one of these pay-per-views. So, thank you to my co-hosts here for their great show. Thank you to Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you WWE Network for content. Thank you to Richard Reader and Jason Gross for our logo. Uh, shout out to our friends, uh, the at Odds with Wrestling brand drafted Alexa Bliss, and that was it. Then they just stopped. Uh, you can follow us across the internet at TRN House Show. You can follow Matt at Mayday Treats. You can follow me at Mass Library. And MassLibrary.com is my home blog. And usually I'll say something screwy at the end of the show just to kind of annoy my co-host here. But there's been enough screwy endings on this pay-per-view tonight. So I think I'll just say thank you to everyone and we'll leave it at that. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.